1: I miss
2: you. What's good, Internet? It is February 5th, 2021, and you are listening to the first in a series of special episodes of Waypoint Radio, which we will be releasing every Friday for the next five weeks or so. Uh, you may have heard us mention this on a past episode of the podcast or on Twitter, but for the past eight months or so, the team here at Waypoint has been consulting on and contributing to a new TV series about video games called Reset, which, uh, was spearheaded by some great folks at Vice News, and which has begun airing this week on Vice TV on Wednesday nights, um, each episode tackles uh, the history of a topic. It digs into its contemporary moment, and then at the very end, there is a short roundtable that's hosted by Vices Dexter Thomas uh, and features a bunch of guests, including all of us here at Waypoint. We all show up at some point in the series. Um, well, I say it's a short round table, uh, but that is just the TV version of the roundtable. You know that we do five star runtimes around here, and so while the panel length on the TV show is only a few minutes long there was a much longer conversation when we actually filmed those panels. And that longer conversation is being debuted exclusively for y'all here on Waypoint Radio. Shout out Staccato for doing the edit on these. Shout outs to the staff on Reset for setting up recording the conversations and for allowing us uh, to share them with you. So for the next five weeks, we will be releasing two of these panels per week as our Friday episode. The one today uh, features first Dexter Thomas, Patrick, uh, Matt Galt and I, as we talk about game preservation, emulation, leaks, stuff like that. Then we take a break, and when we come back, it'll be the second panel, which is a conversation about fighting games and the FGC. Uh, that's, again, hosted by Dexter, and it features our own Gita Jackson, and special guest Phil Nolan, who is a documentarian, videographer, who's been covering the FGC and competitive gaming writ large for years. Phil's someone who I've wanted to work with for a long time, and I was glad to be able to bring him in uh, to have this conversation and contribute to the episode, too. Um, also before I get out of your way and let these panels play, I should say that both of these episodes, the preservation emulation one, and then the, uh, the also fan games, that episode also hits fan games. It's a really good episode. People should watch it. And then also the FGC one are both online and available to watch. Uh, until March 7th, you can go to twitch.tv slash Waypoint, click on videos, and watch the preservation episode. That video is region-free, so no matter where you are in the world, you'll be able to watch it until we have to take it down on March 7th. Uh, it is also up on our YouTube channel, Way- uh, Vice. Mm, what is it? It's youtube.com slash Waypoint Vice. Um, and that version is region-locked, but it's not going anywhere. Uh, the same is is the same goes for the FGC episode, which is over on Vice's uh, YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Vice, probably um i promise that if i or anyone else actually involved in the the material production of this show could make these more permanent videos region free and also just free in general we would do that um that is not how tv production works unfortunately the, the people who make things want the things they make to be seen by as many people as possible, but the people who sign the checks to get those things made are often able to do so only because they've agreed to some weird international exclusivity deal that I don't even really have a good handle on. So I can't even give details except to say someone signed a deal in like France, and now that means we don't get to put these on YouTube for free forever, region, you know, region unlocked um and that's just the way it is and that sucks but again twitch.tv slash waypoint you can go watch the first episode and then you're going to get all of the conversations you know uncut or you know probably cut a little bit because sometimes we had to like retake things because so it would stumble over their words so yes cut a little bit and edit it again thank you to Kado for for doing that uh but for the next five weeks i hope you enjoy those um so i'm gonna get out of your way and I hope you enjoy these. So coming up right now, Dexter Thomas, Patrick, Matt Galt, me talking about game preservation, fan games, emulation, the gray territory around the Giga leak stuff like that. Uh, and, then, and then after the break, FGC with Dexter, Gita, and Phil Nolan. I hope you enjoy. Peace.
3: We're back, and we're about to get into it with the Reset Roundtable. Joining me this time from Motherboard is Matthew Galt, Patrick Kupik, and the host of Waypoint Radio, Austin Walker. So, game preservation. let's let's get into it. <laughs> we all listen to a lot of music, I'm sure, we play a lot of video games, watch movies, all that sort of thing. For you, how is game preservation different from the preservation of songs or films or books? I think the thing that comes to mind first
2: is the ways in which um, it's more difficult in some cases, right? Um mm-hmm. with a with a song uh, or a movie, we've seen the ways in which the technology allows you to kind of revisit something from years and years ago, whether that is through a streaming service or before that through an MP3 or a DVD or whatever it is. But there are lots of games that are just not available to to play through official uh, services or on consoles or on PC. Um, or they couldn't be made uh, available to revisit. Uh, The thing that comes to mind for me is one of my all-time favorite games that I'll never get to play again, probably, which was The Matrix Online. Uh, You know, with The Matrix movies, Uh. I can go back. I can watch those movies, right? But The Matrix Online required servers. It had people running the game, playing characters in the game. Uh, it was had all these live events. So th- that feeling required not just me, not just the game, but hundreds and hundreds, thousands of other people around the world playing that game on the same server I was on. That just isn't replicatable in the same way. And so that's a challenge for preservationists. Mm-hmm.
4: It's also the case that video games are tied to technology in a way that other mediums aren't. Um, when you buy a new box... It is not a guarantee that the games you played before are going to work on it, where there is a little more of a guarantee that, you know, if you buy a new CD player, the CDs, you're going to work. If you buy a Blu-ray player, your DVDs are going to work. But when you buy a PlayStation 5, the PlayStation 4 discs maybe are going to work if you look at a list um, in uh, (laughs) – You know, decades ago, when you bought a Nintendo 64, well, they are both these plastic cartridges, but this doesn't fit in the slot anymore. And so there are are literal technological gaps that prevent you being able to play games that you may own, but you're going to have to keep that connected to the TV or hope that that video game company decides to bring that game to the new platform. And at that Mm -hmm. point, it's it's not whether there's a game that you really loved that, meh, they don't think they're gonna make any money on by re-releasing it or spending the work for it to, to make it function on new technology. You gotta keep that thing plugged into your v, your TV. And if it breaks, well, they're maybe not gonna repair that stuff anymore because it doesn't make any sense. And it's all because it's gonna kind of comes back to video games being tied to technology and that um, over time, you expect games to look better, play better, but that's because these boxes change over time. That's tied to money, mm. capitalism, and then ultimately, you know, your favorite games, like, just may not function anymore for a variety of reasons.
2: My N64, N64 doesn't work. <laughs> like It just doesn't work anymore. I yeah. don't care if I, have a yeah. issue of if I have a copy of Goldeneye, I can't just... Or not even Goldeneye, because Goldeneye is something that maybe you can imagine gets re- remade at some point. But let me say, the Mission Impossible maybe. game, which is better than people gave it credit for on the N64... No one is going to re-release that game and re-license it. I'm going to have to go buy a new N64, try to track down a working copy of the game. And it's it's probably not worth all that, but it would be nice to revisit it the same way I would like to revisit an album from that year. Or revisit that first Mission Impossible movie, which is a a great movie, IMO.
5: And there's also this (laughs) physical component that's, that's tied to especially like the early NES and SNES stuff where it's mm-hmm. not just about the digital game that you're playing but the packaging that it came in
1: this uh, is i think
5: less so a little bit less of an issue now but like if you want a copy of Earthbound and you want it as you remembered uh, it when you were a kid are you just going to go get and you know a, a cartridge for Earthbound or do you want that big box that had the players guide in it and you know the all of the ephemera and stuff that went along with that and when we preserve things um, I think we have to make room for preserving all of the like stuff that went with it, not just the game itself.
3: Yeah. Can I can I can I flex real quick? Let me hold on. Let me
5: oh wow. Let me, let me
3: flex right quick. Hold up.
5: Where is he going?
2: What is he Dexter's leaving the gonna, I'm watching the, a monitor? The Nintendo power
4: issue where you could like pull out the earthbound like uh, map is is what we're gonna find here.
3: Matthew, I'm so glad you brought this up because not to flex, but I just happen to have my own personal copy of Earthbound right here. Unbelievable. That's a big box. I got it. So, so this, it's, it's, no, this is the big boy. This is the real thing. And I remember when and so this is the this is the original box. It's got, you know, it's got the big, the big fancy manual in it. It's got the game uh-huh. in it. And I remember buying this thing. Think about this for $5 from the local mom and pop video (laughs) rental store, right? Not thinking anything of it. And this is a phenomenal game. This is a phenomenal game. But I remember when, you know, it's in the Super Nintendo era. We're in the N64 era. We're in the Wii, you know, the GameCube era. We're in the Wii area. You know what I mean? And I remember looking on eBay and realizing this thing cost damn near $1,000 because you couldn't get the game. And I remember feeling so bad for people. That you can't even play the game, it's just not available. you actually have to resort to you know downloading an illegal copy of it because is this is this a good game? Yes, it is a phenomenal game. Easy top ten. Is it worth a thousand dollars? Absolutely not it's I can't justify that. You cannot justify that. And it just felt so whack that I had accidentally gotten this game, and that i if I wanted to share it with somebody and say, "Look, you should really play this game." They had to go obtain it.
2: The, uh, I just can't shake that that feeling of you in your room. It's dark. It's at night. You're playing. And you're like, damn, I just feel bad for other people. Couldn't be me <laughs> playing
4: Earthbound. As he, as he cradles did. the Earthbound and puts it under the pillow. Mm. Yeah, exactly. A thousand dollars? Five dollars mm. sounds... Delightful.
3: <laughs> Yo, I mean it's some you know that that's this is a few this is a few car payments right here. This is right, <laughs> this ain't gonna put you right. through college, but totally. you know, it'll cover textbooks. But you're right. This will cover textbooks for a semester. Easy. Easy, maybe two. Depending on what classes you're taking. The funny thing is, is that Dexter, you're
2: right. You know, you could have gone online, downloaded the copy of the game, played it illegally, uh, or or we would have rationalized some reason to say it wasn't illegal, don't worry about it but the that yeah. didn't change the value of the game the game was still selling on eBay for a thousand dollars at the time or or, or or whatever and it's not the only one that does that and that's because there is sort of um uh, an aura to the game itself to the physical thing to the instruction mm-hmm. manual to the box to the to all of the ephemera that comes with it because it's a it's a real physical object um and I'm curious for those of you, you know who who keep up with this stuff a little bit, how you think digital distribution or things like Game Pass have changed that style of preservation and collection? Because on one hand, it means more stuff is available to play, more old more old games now are available to play legitimately from a, a service you pay money to than ever before. But at the same time, does that does that does that change your desire to? Own that copy of Earthbound, or that old copy of something else, where you love the instruction manual, you love the box, or do you still have that feeling, mm. that desire to collect uh, in you? Well, the the interesting
4: thing is that it used to be the case that you could go to retail establishments like GameStop or Funkoland or whatever, Software et cetera, Babbage's, like whatever your local yeah, rest place in at peace the mall. Funkoland, man. Yeah, Oof. yeah. Funkoland <laughs> was essentially a spot that my parents uh, left me at. To act as a babysitter, because like, hey, can you can you just yes. pull a game off the shelf, play that for half an hour, and then eventually the manager <laughs> would be like, ma'am, we're not being paid to watch your, <laughs> watch
2: your children. You know, ma'am, the this is that, a funko land. Yeah,
4: <laughs> but there there were giant boxes. Uh, you know, the whole place was just lined with cartridges all over the place, and the games the games were a dime a dozen. You could go in there with fifteen dollars, walk out with ten games, and then as people yeah. of our generation um, got older. They suddenly had a nostalgia for all of these different cartridges, and then they started collecting them. Then there suddenly weren't bins of them because most of them got thrown out. And the ones that weren't thrown out either went into preservation or they went on eBay. The prices of that stuff skyrocketed, and that stuff tra- that same transition happened during the introduction of digital, where you now have generations of people that are like, "Who are these olds that just want to hold on to like these boxes and put them on a yeah. shelf? Isn't it nicer to just have it on this invisible hard drive and not even think of the idea?" Of, of keeping physical items. And I, I think that's that, that's a, a generational thing, but also a technological transitional thing that is sort of encouraging us to like, forget the idea of ownership, forget the idea of being able to preserve things on our own. Just trust that the companies can handle it and you just click the button, you download it, and it'll be there whenever you want. When on a, on a service like Game Pass, well, if Microsoft owns the game, owns the company, well, that game will be there forever. But, well, if they're just renting it from another company, it might be there for a month, two months, and then you're going to have to pay $60 to get access to it. Or maybe 10 years from now, that company goes bankrupt and the license for that goes into some sort of estate and it goes in limbo and then you can't get it at all. And that stuff is is rare, but it does happen and it's increasingly a problem or at least something of of a concern as we switch to an all digital format where you don't have ways of just pulling something off of a shelf and saying, this is mine and I'm going to do what I want with it.
5: Or you have a company that gets into pachinko machines and doesn't want anything to do with gaming anymore. and <laughs> uh, makes it incredibly hard to even play the demo that they put out, right? PT is, is what I'm dancing around. This uh-huh. great like yeah. technical tease for a Silent Hills game that never came out um, that you can play on a PlayStation 4 if you downloaded it at the time. And... That's the only way you can play it. Even though it's hypothetically playable on a PlayStation 5, Konami has said that they do not want people to be able to play it there. Correct? So now you have this very narrow case where there's a certain amount of PlayStation 4s out there that have this one very specific game on it that only a few people are ever going to be able to play. And it will end up on eBay like the Earthbound boxes. Um, And essentially because of the whims of uh, Konami. Right, they're in complete control of the supply of that particular game because it
2: was only ever digital. Yeah. Right, I mean, I, I think that that's one of the things that's interesting. Uh, that change has made it so much different to to preserve these things, to archive stuff. Um, and I'm curious, you know, Dexter, you're someone who clearly again keeps an earthbound box uh, with you at all times. You're clearly <laughs> someone who loves old paraphernalia and ephemera. Do you think there was something lost in this switch to digital, to digital distribution, downloadable games, et cetera?
3: I mean, the the funny thing is, it's it's kind of like what you were saying earlier, Patrick. When when I started collecting games, it was because they were just mad cheap. I would go into Funko Land with five dollars and walk out with a bag of games. I mean, I I remember actually walking in one time and they just and Mario, they had this this sort of newspaper with all the price listings on it, if y'all remember that. And yeah, man. And I remember one month, Mario Brothers was five cents, and I just went up to the dude behind the counter. I said, "How many Mario's y'all got?" And he said, "I don't know." And he counted them. I said, "Let me get all them Mario's." And to this day, in a box behind my couch right now, I have thirty copies of Super Mario Brothers, just for GP. I used to. I was handing them out of school. It's just, hey, you want a Mario? Yeah. I just have all these Mario's, and, and because it, they were they were like trash. Then it wasn't even a loss leader. It was just they I, they were actually happy that I was getting rid of it for them and paying them for the privilege of not having to throw it out and fill up their trash bags, <laughs> right? And so when I first got started, you know, I'm i am I'm a very, like, I, I won't hide it. I'm a very digital person. And so even with books, I tend not to have books because even in grad school, I PDF'd, I scanned all my books and, and you know, got rid of them because I just didn't want them taking up space, Right. But I think one thing that we've learned within video games is that things could disappear at any time. Is there could be something that is on, on the digital shop that you buy, you download, and you delete it because you need some space, and then the next time you say, you know what, let me re-download that thing. I want to play through it again. It could be gone, and that is or, something that is a very real danger. And you, and now it kind of makes you want to hold on to stuff because just oh shoot, this game may away it could disappear at some point and i won't have any control over that or the thing that could happen could be what happened
2: recently with the remake of demon souls this you know very interesting mm-hmm. game by the same company that made dark souls uh, and it got a remake and it got a remake from a different company and that company changed certain things. You know, there's a different aesthetic in certain places. The enemies look a little bit different. There's you know, the music is recorded differently. They tried to keep the core, like, action the same. And, and obviously they're drawing, you know, on a lot of the original material. Um, but there were some fans who were upset, including me, about certain changes in the way the game is presented and that's the version that people are going to play for the next 5-10 years because it's out on the PlayStation yeah. 5, right? And so and, and you can't just go get the PS3 version unless you have a PS3, you have, you know, a TV set up for it. You you go buy the old Demon Souls copy. The new definitive version is different in all these different ways. The architecture is different in certain areas. There are cutscenes and story moments that are filled with a different sort of emotion because they were reanimated. And new sound effects were added. And that that cha- it's almost as if you know the original Psycho disappeared and there was only the remake, the shot by shot remake that existed. And you go, okay, well this is shot by shot. It's the same thing. And like, well, no, obviously they're different things. I'm not saying that remake shouldn't exist. But you have to recognize that when you give up control of archival to companies, what they're going to end up doing is trying to figure out how to sell you a new product and and leave that other one in the dust whenever possible. I mean, I'm sure if they came up with a very cheap way of also selling you that original, they would do that. But but when this is the option, <laughs> right. what they did, what they do is they do a remake, or maybe they do a collection, or whatever it is. But there's stuff that gets left on the wayside, stuff that gets that's you know off in the margins, or gets cleaned up or sanded mm. down. Um, and that and that's why it gets tricky because let's say you wanted to play the best original version of Demon Souls right now. The best way to play that game would be to download it from the internet illegally with an emulator that gives it a better frame rate and all these other technical improvements, but leaves the soul of the game, no pun intended, uh, uh, untouched. And that is tricky
5: because, again, that's not exactly a legal thing to do. The lift for the preservation of the original is heavier, too, is it's not just – Right. Like when we make these these comparisons, like I think about A Star is Born – of which there's like four or five different versions of this film, and you can go watch all of them. Right. With Demon's Souls, to keep it preserved in its original state, like they have to maintain servers. Like there's a cost to the company for that. Now, that's not every single game, obviously, and the lift is different for different games. Yep. But. Um, Like who bears that cost in the name of preservation and in the name of allowing someone to go back and relive memories or play or experience this thing that they wanted to experience but never got an opportunity to, right? Especially with Demon's Souls, where that game
2: came out on the PlayStation 3, which is like mm-hmm. a different sort of technology as a platform than the systems that came after it. The consoles that came after it are a lot more similar in design and technology. Mm-hmm. The PlayStation 3 used this very special processor called the cell processor that makes it harder to take that same stuff and emulate it uh, directly in certain other ways. And that's just a concern mm-hmm. for all, all games in, in that way, you know?
4: Well, in the in the PlayStation yeah. Three, they they got away with doing emulation for their previous machines by literally the chipsets for the older machines got so small over the decades they were able to just put in was I can't remember is it a PS One is in the PS Two or a PS Two is in the PS Three it's 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 one of those but like they literally were able to get it small to just like well just. Slap it on the new box and put it in there. And like that lets you play the older games. Like that was the solution. And and you know, it's been interesting to watch Microsoft, you know, who uh has actually like to their great credit spent a lot of time and effort over the last 10 years finding a way to kind of like sort through those technological gaps. Where now with the the new Xbox, you know, Series X and Series S, you can put in games for the original Xbox. And I've been watching folks play like was it like unreal tournament two or like these other these other strange games that are now running at like super fast frame rates look beautiful the gorgeous look like they're brand new games but are benefiting from uh these you know the having the original disc putting it in like being able to play it and like playing it on a brand new box and it's able to kind of like you know do some technological magic and not just preserve like you know what you own but actually enhance it and make it seem fresh and new using the technology that you're buying uh, today. But like, that's an enormous amount of work to get there. And that's not to say that more companies shouldn't find ways to do that. Cause the alternative is, well, maybe if you're not going to put in the effort, like let, you know, let the fan community let, find other avenues for people to do that work for you. But you know as evidenced by companies like nintendo they don't want to give up that control because well maybe you don't want to make the remake or resell this game today but you might want to five 10 15 years from now and if you just tell the community well here's the source code like go wild like build your own thing well then you're giving up control and leverage over money that you could make in the in the future even if it's in the pursuit of uh you know preservation
3: and history and you know what got you to this moment well i mean especially if if For example, Nintendo, right? I'm thinking of the Mario 64 version that just came out recently on the Switch, right? Right. Now, it looks a little bit better than the original, which is great, but the thing is the definitive, I shouldn't say definitive, but if you want the really fast frame rate, if you want the best graphics, if you want to really play this thing in 1080p, the best way to play it is not on the Switch. It's a bootleg version that fans have modified and hacked and playing it via emulator on your computer, which is... Wild to think about. And, and yeah. not only that is I'm thinking of the fact that Mario 64, I mean, it, it's an absolutely legendary game. People have been playing this since the game came out. And there is an entire culture, subculture that has been built up around Mario 64, about exploring every single little facet of it, about speed running it, for example, all these things. And Nintendo patched some of the bugs out of the original Mario 64. But the thing is, some of those bugs, some of those quirks were what made the game so fun. Things like being able to backwards long jump up that set of stairs that you're not supposed to be able to do to beat the game faster. You can't do that I think in the in the current version in the in the re-release. And so, it's very much a situation where Nintendo and this is not just Nintendo obviously, but game companies are not only deciding what they want to sell you, what they think is profitable but what version of it they want to give you. And sometimes the version that they want to sell you isn't actually what a lot of fans want. And so you don't have that
4: control. Totally. Yeah, I was I was reading about um, the you know the, that 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 version of Mario sixty four you're talking about is part of you know Super Mario three D All Stars and they did uh, yeah. Nintendo did a different collection uh, for the Super Nintendo uh, you know uh, Super Mario All Stars that had um, a yes. collection of original games for the uh, Nintendo and Super Nintendo and also they redid some of the aesthetics some of the graphics for some of the older titles and I was reading interviews where mm-hmm. um, uh, the, the designer Shigeru Miyamoto was discussing that when they were they were looking at the game code and trying to analyze, well, what bugs should we keep and what bugs should we fix? And it was difficult for them to ascertain what is a bug that was actually became something people enjoyed about the game, and what is something that was actually mm-hmm. a hindrance that would make people's lives better, that would make their play uh, with the game better. And they, they, there was a tricky balance for them to figure out what is what is something that became over time a part of the game by accident, and what is something that would, you know it's it's annoying when you like glitch through this wall and you didn't actually <laughs> mean to, and like that's an open question <laughs> yeah. because of the way games are played and understood and and experienced now is it like it's not necessarily. Uh, easy to answer, like w- what the case is, and like the moment you start kind of mucking around in that, you have to start making those what seem like easy uh, questions to answer. But when I actually look at the totality of how people play games, like you mentioned speedrunning, it's you know mm. it's not necessarily easy to answer. And then you can start kind of like blocking off different avenues for people to enjoy something, even if it's not the way that you know
3: maybe the designers originally intended it. I mean, honestly, this even takes me back, say to Star Wars, right? All the different versions of Star Wars that exist. All the different recuts. Totally. Right? I mean, the dude couldn't make up his mind, <laughs> Lucas, <laughs> right? What did he want to do with it? And But the thing, the thing is about all these different versions of Star Wars, right? Did Greedo shoot first? Did Han Solo shoot first? Whatever. If, if you have a particular version that you like, it's not too hard to obtain that and watch it on some sort of modern setup. Right. You can get you can get your old VHS, you can transfer that over. It's gonna have, you know, the artifacts from the old VHS because it's an old medium, right? But you can still watch the thing. But if you right now, if you want to play you know Super Mario 64 as Miyamoto intended it back then, you gotta go get an old machine. And granted, that's and that's for a pretty ubiquitous game, right? If you want a game that's a little bit more rare, you're gonna have some trouble. Totally. And
2: if I can pivot this a little bit, there's also something interesting about the idea of revisiting an old game uh, at all and, and whether or not we really even can do it. It reminds me of this article I read in Game Studies, which is this academic journal by uh, Andrew Hutchinson. It's called Making the Water Move, uh, and it's about the way that we uh, kind of lose touch with the way we originally felt about certain games. Um, he writes about Mist and about Doom. Uh, two classic games from the 90s that made a big splash partially because of their kind of technological advancement. Uh, it's called Making the Water mm. Move because in Mist you could look out and see the water move. And at the time, as a player, that was mind-blowing. It looked so realistic. Yeah. With Doom, that game was so fast. It was so unlike anything else, the way that you bounced around these arenas at full speed, the way you were blasting demons, and everything was just, like, just non-stop. For players today, those things are not that um, uh, you know incredible. They're they're not that out of the ordinary. In fact, in some ways, you might look at something like Mist and think it looks really old. You look at something like Doom and you go like, yeah. Why is all this? Why is this so pixely? Um, or maybe you don't, but there are <laughs> players who do. Um, and so the the argument that that Hutchinson ends up making, and, and that I'm curious how y'all feel about, is. That's part of why we need to archive not only games but also all the ephemera around them, game reviews, the things people post mm. on forums, the fan art that people make, all the things that in the moment they they made to try to express how the games made them feel because going back to playing these games now might not elicit that same response and it's easy to lose that that feeling that you maybe originally had with Super Mario 64, because you've played so many Mario games since then. But it, all games yeah. have that sort of that sort of like you, you know, your impression changes over time.
4: Awesome. nobody needs to read my thoughts about Final Fantasy seven from an AOL message board. That's like, not true. <laughs>
2: I need to
5: read those.
4: I don't need to read them. You don't need to read them. Release I the just, tapes.
5: Hey, you know, Release the t- tapes. <laughs> <laughs> like uh I'll make this a little bit weirder and go even further with it because it's something I've been thinking about a lot Do with it. Demon Souls. Um, like mm. when Demon Souls came out, I was—I played it on a friend's PlayStation Three. I had to go and journey to a specific GameStop that had one copy, um, and I was in a really terrible place in my life. I was in—it um, was the probably one of the lowest points in my life—and that game helped me get through it. And I think about like picking up this remake, I'm going to play it, but like, I'm going, am I going to be replacing some of those old memories or overriding them with this remaster? Is this new version going to take Mm. precedence and like muddle up my memories of that very specific like moment in my life? And do I want to do that? Um, I'm going to barrel forward. I'm going to play this game, but I, but like I I approach it with that kind of trepidation. Um, And I think when we talk about remasters specifically, uh, you, it's, it is about selling something new, right? It is a new experience. It's not necessarily about preserving the past in any way. And so I think that Austin, you're exactly right. Like preserving the context in which Mm -hmm. these things came out and all of the ephemera around them, not just the boxes, but like the reviews and the reactions from the community are an important part of this preservation process. You can really like understand the cultural context in which a film was released by going back and seeing what Pauline Kale was saying about it at the time, right? That will mm-hmm. really impact your viewing of the movie. And I feel like with games, we're not quite, we're still transitioning out of this place where we see it primarily as um, toys. I mean, this obviously gotten a lot yeah. better in the last like five or 10 years, but there's still this place where video games are so market driven and we see them so much as commodities. Um, that I think the culture is really starting to get away from that, but we're still in that transition phase.
3: I'm thinking about, for example, it, you're you're precisely right. I think Austin. I mean, you can't understand. You could sit down, and you could play Mortal Kombat right now, and you can say, "Huh, totally weird." Bunch of cartoon people punching each other in this <laughs> and some blood. Cool, but until you see the newspaper articles, until you see. The assets you, till you see the advertisements. How were they advertising? What did they want people to feel? I think that's even maybe more important sometimes in the newspaper articles because the newspaper articles we're pretty good about archiving newspapers. We're pretty good about archiving even magazines, even if it is a video game magazine. Yeah. I think that makes sense to people that yes, we should that that is media we should archive it. But you know what kind of ads was Midway sending out back then, right? And I think. What what kind of ads what, were they sending out with Doom, right? And so you can look at all the newspaper articles that came out around Doom. You can look at the video game reviews. You can look at what people were saying about Doom after Columbine. But I think you have to step back and you have to look at, okay, what went into the development of Doom? What went into the into the advertisement of Doom to be able to really form any kind of coherent picture or opinion about any of that situation, any of that context. You have to be able to understand it from the, from the point of view of the developers as well, not just what everybody else was saying, right?
2: Totally. Well, I think part of what, you're, what you get at too there is, you know, this is not the episode where we talk about GamerGate or something. But if you're trying to, for mm-hmm. instance, study where does GamerGate come from? You have to look at video game advertisements. You have to look at uh, internet forum posts. You have to look at all that stuff that we think of as trash. Like, why would I keep that? But if you are someone who is trying to study the way social movements happen, the way things change in a genre over time, right? Thinking about the way Mm -hmm. uh, that a particular concept like love or war are depicted in games, you need to do more than just go play a bunch of games. You have to see how the development changed over time, how advertising changed over time, how the conversations that people were having. Having around these things changed over time. And you can only do that if you think about it now immediately and start archiving that stuff as soon as possible, because eventually it'll become too late. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't go back and capture the conversations that people were having when the first golden age of comics. You know, happened because so many of the conversations around that stuff, the fanzines, the ways that, you know, people uh, uh, talked about it locally, none of that stuff was archived. People threw that all out because it seemed like childish trash. But today, like, think about how much better the world would be if we had more records of what went into developing and making Superman what kids thought about Superman or Spider-Man when they, when he first met the, you know, it came into the scene. Um, we have the opportunity yeah. now to capture some of that stuff and we, re- so that we can revisit it years from now.
5: There's a really fascinating exhibit in the video game museum, the national video game museum that's in Frisco, Texas. Um, mm. And it's basically started by like three guys that owned video game stores and they kind of pooled their collections and built this museum, but there's two rooms that they have that are they have preserved like a childhood bedroom from like a suburban kid in the 1980s and that's where you play a game boy and so you're playing a game boy in that bedroom that has an et poster on the wall and has a comic book spread out and they also have a wood paneled um like bed or a, a living room with like the sunken floor and like the shag carpet and like the big you know, gross wooden television. And that's where you can play an Atari 2600. And yeah. that does help, like like steeping yourself in those moments in time really help you understand like what those games were about in those moments. I think that was like part of one of, one of the more effective part, parts of their museum are those two rooms. This is, this is kind
3: of the thing for me about these museums, right, is I definitely appreciate that and being able to offer that historical context. I think there's definitely a place for that. But again, we're, we're talking about video games, things that, are, that you need to play, right? So it's all well and good to have kind of these different spotted museums scattered across maybe the world, but also in the United States, where you can walk up and play a video game for a little bit but that is not going to give you the experience of playing Final Fantasy 1 on the Nintendo, right? Or playing some old game where the experience is not pushing the A button a couple of times, seeing the guy jump up and down and saying, huh, wow, video games were pretty primitive back then. <laughs> Neat. The, the experience is spending hours and hours grinding through this game and then being able to think about what what were these people thinking back then? <laughs> this, this seemed like a good idea, right? And it's, I, I find, actually, I have to give a big shout out to basically what I think is kind of some of the people who are doing a lot of the work of these museums, which is people on YouTube, right? I find that actually some of the best archival work is actually being done through YouTube. And it's, th- the thing is, if you want if you want to have any idea of what the experience is like to actually own these physical games, not everybody can go to a museum, right? You may, be you may be experiencing this by watching somebody like Metal Jesus, watching somebody like, I don't know, John Hancock, watching somebody like James Rolfe, right? The The angry video game nerd. This, one of the big things about this dude's channel was in the beginning, he had this big wall of all of these video games. And most people will never have that. And a museum can offer you the experience of walking in there for a moment, but it can't offer you the experience of actually being able to take one of those things off the shelf and play it, which for me, I feel like is where emulation comes in. I mean, I know we kind of been dancing around this the whole time, but, and this is something that I talked with, with Frank Cifaldi, but the the actual practice of archiving these video games, when the companies were not doing it at all, just the raw data of the games to make it playable on something, anything, was being done by the pirates. We we owe, what you know, legal, illegal, or somewhere in between, I think the video game industry actually owes a lot to the original pirates who were ripping these games off of these original cartridges and CDs. And then spreading them around when they had absolutely no authorization to do so. Totally, I, it is. It, I think it's
2: undeniable because so many people have talked about the fact that they got into video games through game piracy, through emulation. Uh, I want to say mm. Jamie Cheng uh, at Clay uh, on a on a, an interview he did once talked about you know buying bootleg games and that was his way of playing way more types of things than he could have than he could have done on just his like allowance if he'd gone to a game store and spent 50, 60, 70 bucks on a game. And because of that, he became a game designer because he got to taste all these different things. Um, I know for me, as a kid in high school where I did not have a lot of money, I definitely played through like Chrono Trigger, trigger via uh, emulation. That is a game I could not yeah. afford out of pocket and became very influential on my, t- on my tastes. Um, and that isn't to say that that's like a good thing fundamentally. That no one, that everyone should just take games for free from the internet and blah blah blah. But but I do think that it's to have an honest conversation about it. You have to say, hey, these people were doing this work. There was there were positive effects. And and mm-hmm. what is, how do you, how does that shake out in the balance? How do you end up thinking about that in the long term, especially as that stuff gets cracked down on now, as it gets kind of professionalized and brought into services like Game Pass and Nintendo's online, you know, uh, the Nintendo Switch online service, stuff like that. Uh, it has to be part of that conversation at least, or at least we shouldn't tell the story like pirates were the worst people in the world, the way that sometimes that story gets told.
3: Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to, right. this is right after Nintendo went after a couple really big, or not even really big, actually, I should re-say that. So, right after Nintendo went after some ROM sites, right, I remember that MU Paradise shut down. And MU Paradise was a massive ROM site. That's where a lot of people went. And you knew if you downloaded something from there, it probably didn't have a virus, (laughs) and so it was pretty popular, And, you know, no guarantees, but but, MU MU Paradise was a really reputable ROM site, I remember, and they just completely shut down. They hadn't been threatened, they just shut down out, out of fear of actually getting similar legal action. And I remember talking to the person who owns it on the phone and they were telling me, look, I grew up in a country where these video games were not readily accessible. And my first experience with Game Boy was through ROMs, was through d- illegally downloaded video games, that even if I wanted to buy them, there's no way I could have accessed this stuff. And that that brought me into a culture that I felt like I'd been missing, and I wanted to spread that to other people. Now, is that legal? No. But I think we also have to understand that because companies have not made this available, that is what has allowed or even necessitated pirates to move in, to do something that look a lot of the pirates they actually do view themselves regardless of what we may think they actually do regard themselves as archivists as people who are saving you know these these cultural artifacts from oblivion and they're not entirely wrong to to bounce off
2: that i know it to go back to kind of a part of the conversation we had earlier then you know mm-hmm. you were saying dexter that a huge part of what we need to think about and what we need to archive are the, the things from the developer's perspective, why they made certain decisions, yeah. You know what their record was of, of trying different solutions out when they were making games, all sorts of stuff. Um, and unfortunately, in the world of video games, a lot of companies are black boxes. They don't want to talk about what they did uh, in the past. They don't want to show you prototypes. They don't want the public to see source yeah. code. They don't want to show anyone you know design journals. A lot of companies treat that stuff as like 100% off-limits. And and we've been on the press, you know, side of this thing, asking to, to hear more stories. You have no idea how many times I've talked to people at big video game companies and have said, <laughs> we would love to do a documentary about XYZ. People want to know the story yes. behind this. People want to hear how you came up with that. And they say, well, you know, that stuff is just not something we're interested in telling telling you about right now, but, uh, or, or ever maybe. Um, and so what yeah. happens because of that is you get things like the Giga Leak right where oh, man. a hacker goes Uh-oh. in gets a lot of information <laughs> including some stuff that has nothing to do with the development of games and it's just about allegedly, personal life allegedly stuff. sorry a <laughs> hacker allegedly did this thank you patrick keep the lawyers off my butt um, allegedly a <laughs> hacker did this and then allegedly some other people spread that information across the internet. How did they get around across the internet? Who could say? I'm not a lawyer or an investigator so I will make no claims as to the, the causality of the situation. But what we know mm-hmm. is there is now a lot of information about what has happened at Nintendo for years and years and years that publicly was not available before. Really interesting stuff if you're a Nintendo nerd like I think a lot of us are that just we would would not have yeah. access to otherwise. And so I'm curious what you all think of that. And if you think that that crosses a line that's too far or what we do with that information now that it's out
3: there. I mean, what do I think of that? I think that I should definitely give a shout out to everybody for watching what is undoubtedly the final episode of reset. Now that we're talking about the Giga Leak, So thank you <laughs> for bringing that up. <laughs> Suit into oblivion. It's been a fun ride. <laughs> it's been a fun ride, but no, no, it's, it, it's a, Tough situation, right? Because Nintendo as a company has every right not to want to release details about the development of anything, right? They have no obligation to us as as fans or as consumers. It doesn't matter how how many copies of Mario you happen to own. It's not yours. You don't own it. It is their intellectual property. And yet, a lot of people want to see this stuff.
4: Well, because they're a company that's been so secret secretive over the deck, that's part of their special sauce. Like Nintendo is often yeah. um you know compared to an Apple or a Disney uh, a video game, yes. specifically because those companies have a shared DNA of wanting to pretend things are just made behind a curtain. They come out and voila, like look at how magical this is. It comes out of nowhere. Like there aren't people who make this, there aren't struggles, uh-huh. there isn't stress, there isn't you know, labor involved. It is just, ah, like a video game. It was in an egg. And then like, poof, like it's out for you to, to pay money for. <laughs> like a and Yoshi. So, yeah. Like, like, well, you saw those pictures of those different Yoshis they worked on. Like they didn't necessarily know what Yoshi was going to look like for a long time. He looked pretty weird for a long time. And, and that, and, that, and that is the, the case with Nintendo is because they don't like to talk about their process. They've created a situation where people are desperate to know anything about that process and so you know Mm -hmm. yes was all this material stolen from them and that is you know on some level wrong uh yes but there is this deep curiosity for to understand the way they work because they don't want to talk about the way they work and so what you end up with is something like the giga leak which is you know a a mixture of a a series of hacks that have occurred to nintendo over the years and then slowly kind of come out in different batches but it's also what Nintendo set themselves up for was uh, an information dump completely devoid of context in which, yes, is it cool to see like all these random sprites of Yoshi and see how, of course, Yoshi didn't just like pop up out of the first design. Like they spent a long time thinking through what is Yoshi? Like, does he have a family? Like other old Yoshis? Are there young Yoshis? Is gender involved with Yoshi? Like clearly, through like all the leaks, we know that they thought about these very obvious questions, but they just want to present you with, here's the cute Yoshi we end up with. Look how cute he is. And it's true. He's cute. He's adorable. He's cute. But <laughs> how they got there is so fascinating. But because what you are, end up with, is we don't we have to actually know that much more than we did before. We have a bunch of information that we can put up on a wall and like try and ascribe um intent or context to but we don't have it you know what you wanted out of a super mario 3d all stars was here's super mario 64 and also here's a documentary about the process we're going to show you how we made this game and um, we're going to you know work with archivists and historians and they're going to you know work with us to to inform us on what do people want to know? Because we're the creators. So maybe we don't exactly know what people are interested in. And so, you know, on mm. one hand, the reason historians and archivists are pretty mad about the, the GigaLeak is because if Nintendo is ever interested in doing something like that, well, something like this is going is to potentially burn that bridge in the future. But yeah. at the same time, I never really expected them to go down that path anyway yeah. because they've never shown any interest in explaining themselves. But boy, would I love to know more about it. And if, if the legacy of something like the GigaLeak is that Maybe that starts the gears turning towards them wanting to tell more of that story. Like I would still love to hear a designer talk for twenty minutes about designing Yoshi and not just look at the sprites. But for now, I guess I'll take the sprites. <laughs> that's what we
2: got <laughs> can i can I push back actually a little bit on something that that uh, Dexter you said a moment ago, a, a friendly pushback just to open open our minds a little bit if if that's okay. Um, you said that they don't have an obligation, that Nintendo doesn't have an obligation to share stuff about their process. It's their intellectual property. You know, I, I think you're you're right that they don't have a legal uh, obligation. They don't have a, a professional obligation necessarily. They, in fact, they probably have a, an obligation to their sh- shareholders to keep as much secret as possible, yeah. to keep their secret sauce, blah, blah, blah. But I think we have to get away from thinking about this kind of like, uh, obligation is only something that has to do with law or about the market. Um, what market obligations might be, what capitalism might encourage us to do, because I think that there, you can argue that people who are working in any craft, uh, in any artistic endeavor, do have an obligation to share their knowledge and to shine a light on the process that goes into these things. Patrick just talked about a mm-hmm. little bit the labor that goes into making games. Obfuscating the labor that goes into making games leads to exploitation uh, in the games industry. Uh, and and even in a more selfish consumer-focused way, hiding the kind of genius that goes into making games means that that knowledge doesn't get spread around. Uh, it means that it gets it gets monopolized in very small places. I contrast this to, of all things, the uh, the 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 uh, filmmaker, uh, the director of, of photography, Roger Deakins, who um, is an incredible incredible. Uh, artist who who shot some probably shot some of your favorite movies, um, and back when Blade Runner twenty forty nine came out, uh, someone tipped me to the fact that Deacons has a message board. And if you go onto his message board, he is there talking with other professional and amateur camera operators, directors of photography, cinematographers, mm. and just sharing tips. People are just asking, like, well, how did you do that shot where it goes around the room and the light is scattering? He's like, oh, well, here's the rig I used. Here's the way we did this. Here's the way mm. we did that. And the, the sharing of knowledge is only going to lead to filmmaking being better in the long run. So I understand that they have an obligation to keep that stuff secret so that their bottom line is better, but we have we don't have to agree with that obligation. We can be the people who say, listen, you have other obligations. You have obligations to the art form. You have obligations to the world as people who do this so well. Mm-hmm. And you have to at least think about those obligations. And yeah, maybe that means putting out a sanitized documentary, working with approved historians, keeping Final Cut. You know, what is the last dance of Mario 64? It's okay if Miyamoto <laughs> has Final Cut. Give him Final Cut. I still want that documentary.
3: Yeah. Yeah. think about how much
5: we yeah think about jumping off of that point think about how much we know about the making of star wars right right film is such a great example because it is another big big money-making collaborative medium but um early on in the film process people figured out that that you had better control of the stories people were telling about labor and about the filmmaking process if you were more open if you let the cameras roll behind the scenes if you took the picture of Boba Fett with his helmet off in his serial killer <laughs> glasses smoking the cigarette with his dad's mustache <laughs> you know we we like to and you you can be in you can have great control over your story that way and you can turn it into another way to make money Right? How many, how many behind-the-scenes specials have there been for Star Wars specifically that people mm-hmm. have spent money on? And you get that collaborative process and you enrich other people's knowledge of, the, uh, of everything. And I think that there are so many problems in the video game industry, uh, Austin labor being a prime example, that are tied to this air of secrecy we have around mm-hmm. the creation process. Totally.
2: Labor, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct in general in the last year has been a, a, a huge uh, point of, of discussion as stories come out of these big companies like Ubisoft where, you know, something like 20% of people who work at Ubisoft have reported either discrimination according to sex, gender, race, some sort of sexual misconduct, something in that, in that field um, on top of any sorts of labor crunches, on top of there being ridiculous work hours, all that mm-hmm. other stuff. And and I, I do wonder if part of the reason we don't get those behind the scenes documentaries as often as we would like to is because you would see the stuff that's not 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 only not glamorous but uh, is in fact I think um, you know would, would reveal that the industry is a place that needs a lot a lot of improvement where people are
3: harmed. Oh no, they they would one hundred percent have to admit that the laborers the employees are not being treated well very often. That that's a hundred percent. But yo, I mean, I think the the obligation thing is interesting right because i think what the giga League did is first it proved right beyond any shadow of a doubt that there is an absolute demand that people do not only want the games and they not only want to be able to bootleg you know their their little mario game but they want to know more about the creation of these cultural things right and in that way it's no different from anything else we want to know about how our favorite author came up with some book, we want to know what George Lucas was thinking when he came up with star wars this is this is obvious right and but it I find it fascinating because it's not only we know we I think we almost feel a an entitlement in a way that we might not feel to other forms of media right i feel I have spent so much of my life invested in Mario and Zelda and all these other game <laughs> characters and all these other games that man. I feel entitled at a gut level to that Yoshi picture that Yoshi picture that that's for me. I should be able to see that. I feel like I'm entitled to that now, legally absolutely not and and really, if Nintendo feels sort of embarrassed about it, which I can see why they do because well she wasn't looking so hot at first, um, <laughs> I can understand why they don't want me to see that, and that is that is completely within their bounds, but I find it really interesting because because video games are such an interactive art form. I feel like we almost get more invested in those games and we feel more entitled to know more about those games. So when something like a Giga Leak does happen, we feel like, oh, this isn't something I should turn away from. This is something that, yes, give me more. I want more about, I want more of this. I don't care if it's illegal. And And it reminds me a little bit, because again, I think part of Nintendo's Desire to keep some of this stuff under wraps, right the development history and all that is i p right you know they don't they can't just release all the source code for their games, things like that you can't do that it, as it's yeah, a bad could. business right <laughs> <laughs> they could i i think well no, they look, could look, There's look, no they companies they companies, could. companies make bad decisions all the time man I mean del taco <laughs> dropped the Mexican pizza, I think that's a travesty, but look if they don't want to Godspeed, right? Whatever. I, I can't stop that. I think it's a bad idea. Right. But look, you drop the Mexican pizza, you drop the potato items, so be it. Go with God. That's Whatever. a bad idea. Yeah, dropping that the being... potato
2: items real quick, terrible idea. <laughs> are, we, are we all agreed? It says we have quorum? Can we take a vote?
3: <laughs> I think that, I think it's unanimous. It has to be. Or, or you it can get off be. the panel. But, <laughs> but being real with it. Um, this reminds me, though, of... You remember that Aretha Franklin doc that came out, the one that, I mean, and this came out afterwards. This, she did not want this to come out. And even reviews of it said, this is the film that she didn't want you to see, but you should watch it. And I think the intent of the artists, which again, these these game developers, they're absolutely artists. Some stuff, some artists would rather not show you. They want that magic curtain to exist. They want to just be able to show you Something as though it is fully, you know, it springs forth fully formed, right? That's sort of the magic. That's what they want to give you. And, but I think we as people who appreciate the arts, any art, right? Whether it's film, whether it's music, we want to know more about it. And I think sometimes that takes us past that line of going against the wishes of the artists themselves. That's just part of it, I think.
2: Totally. Well, and I think' that there one, are lines one, small,
4: you can draw. one I, I want one small note about the, the gig leak is that you know Nintendo you know Dexter as you noted is a, is a company that has gone after emulation websites when uh, creators yeah. um, amateur creators try and make remakes or like their own fan mm-hmm. sequels to games um, if they look too nice Nintendo will send a legal cease and desist and get that taken off the internet yep. um, to my knowledge at no point during any part of the Giga leak have they asked for it to be taken down from Facebook from Twitter, articles i've written about it there has been no pushback Mm. from nintendo about we don't want you to discuss it so i do think it's like important to note that they have would have been in their legal right to like you know the nfl will regularly take clips down of games they broadcast from twitter because they want it to come from the official nfl twitter account and so there would have been a Mm -hmm. world where nintendo said this is our property it was stolen We're not going to let you sit out here and share it on YouTube videos, on Twitter. Because, I mean, there were moments where this was like truly all everyone was talking about during like a week-long period as people were finding new information. And Nintendo kind of just sat back and let it happen. And so that was a deliberate choice. That wasn't an accident. They decided to say, we're going to let people do this and pretend, maybe pretend it didn't happen because that will just add more fuel to the fire. But I do think it was curious that they chose to legally not get involved and kind of let the fans explore it on their own
2: uh, the fun an interesting thing too to to contrast really quick is uh, the way Nintendo uh, interacts with fan projects compared to someone like Sega, where we know and not that Sega is a perfect company around relationships with fans and and previous contractors and blah blah blah. But we know that, for instance, you know, Sega has worked directly with people in the Sonic fan community to create projects, has uh, allowed people to come in and, and and help make stuff that feels like, you know, a little more legitimate to what the fans want in, in different ways. And I think that that relationship is something a little bit more, you know, um,
5: something that people appreciate because there's a degree of openness there. And I also want to push back on this idea that we have to always respect the wishes of the artist. Um, Aretha Franklin is, like, Aretha Franklin is a very interesting case because um, she's one person, right? No, she did have collaborators. She was making Mm -hmm. music with other people, but it's a much smaller team. Um, Whereas these video games are large collaborative processes that involve lots of people. But also, like, when you release something to the public, um, there is, at a certain point, it stops being just yours, right and people Mm -hmm. feel great amounts of ownership over this stuff star wars i know we keep coming back to it but is another great example right star wars lived and died because based on its fan community people were able george lucas kind of let people do whatever they wanted to, to do with it right and it only helped grow the fandom and make people appreciate the game the 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 franchise more i think and the you see what happens when an artist really, really tries to hold on too tightly to what they've put out there, right? I think JK Rowling, uh, I think of Anne Rice and like you get into, you end up hurting the people who love what you've created. And I think I see a, a little bit of Nintendo doing that same thing.
2: I think it's worth also drawing a certain line between different types of information Uh, and, and, and the Mm. degree to which people feel, as Dexter said, entitled to it. I don't think that every artist should have all of their stuff be an open book. You know, in another world, uh, I'm a fiction writer. I, I do a lot of fiction work besides being a game critic. I don't, there's lots of stuff that's in, you know, doc, document files, drafts that I don't want out there all the way. When I say that there's an obligation to share about your process, et cetera, I don't mean that everything private should be made public. What I mean is that oh, – and, and to that end, I think I think that there is a degree of entitlement around some of that stuff that I think it's fair to call entitlement. There's a sort of desire to like wikify everything, to have all the data mm-hmm. about every little thing, to have all the plot details answered, to have every little bit of information detailed and cataloged and indexed in a way that I I think is actually like really – uh, a poor way to engage with art because it's not about meaning and theme and idea. And it's more about just like fact, give me all the facts. Let me write down every Yoshi that's ever been, Etc. cetera. I don't think that that's productive. But what I do think of, when I think of myself as a fiction writer, I think that I have an obligation Uh, to the community of other fiction writers to engage and talk about my process, to share certain things that I think are productive, to answer questions when people have them and I have the time to answer them. And if I was a big corporation, to make sure that there was part of that company uh, engaged with that process so that I could uh, know that, you know, we are contributing to not just our bottom line, but to the art and the form and the medium in general.
3: The thing is there is... The reason we are in this position of having things like a Giga leaks, right, or having things like even this debate that we're talking about is because game preservation and game documentation, it's all really patchwork. You've got a few Mm -hmm. scattered museums here. You've got a few websites with bootleg games there, right? And, And you've got some people working really specifically on keeping the ephemera and keeping the source code and things like that. But there's no cultural norms around in the industry. These things simply don't exist. I mean, you've all been working on this for a while. Do you see us getting to a place where game companies do start to either archive publicly or give their stuff to a third party where people can actually go through and learn about the making of the games they love so much? Is that going to happen?
4: You've seen a little bit of a a shift in that. Um, you've got, you know, studios like digital eclipse that uh, collaborate with different companies like. Capcom's where like recent mm. Mega Man collections are you can go through and there's a bunch of scanned original concept art that will show you, you know, this is what, you know, Drill Man looked like when they were originally, you know, kind of like sketching out what this character was going to be. Now that's, you know, it's not an interview with the designer, it's not, you know, maybe as far as, you know, some of us would like them to go. It's not like buying a, you know, a new Blu-ray and there's a big behind the scenes of of the creation, but I do think there is a there has been progress made where um, I think a lot of this is a result of, you know, our generation now getting into positions of influence and power where, like these things mean a lot to me. And so when we're going to put them back out to the public, I, I want people to understand that context. And so I think you're seeing there are, are lots of folks who are in the games, uh, uh, press game critics, game writers, game uh, reporters who have gone on to like be internal editorial um, where they're writing articles and features about the games that these companies are are putting out, especially in a sort of a classic and nostalgic context. And so, I, I think just in the same way that we saw collectible cartridges suddenly become more expensive and valuable as people got older and and uh, desired them more, I think it also may be the mm-hmm. case that as people get older and c- kind of come into these companies and want to and have an, an opportunity to say we should be showing people like how this happened. Hopefully we'll see more of that going forward. And the fact that there are a couple of examples of high profile, especially Japanese companies who tend to be a little more secretive and have like a long history of like in the 70s and 80s, really not keeping track of the source code of like the games they were making, um, thus making historical preservation even just often impossible because it it, you know the the ability to do it doesn't even exist um the fact that we're seeing some of that work done you know it's going to take time maybe it takes a whole nother generation but i do think you're seeing um some of the foundational work being laid for that stuff not just being in a museum not just being on an emulation Mm -hmm. site or a wiki but finding its way into the the products themselves so that we know like big fan, hardcore fans will find the museums and the wikis but the average person is more likely to buy that re-release that collection and if things like that can find their way in there like we all benefit as a result
5: and there's commentary tracks now that's a new thing that's kind of that started to happen right you you've got these games like Grim Fandango Half-Life 2 Half-Life Alex uh, even where you have you can walk through sections of the game with developer commentary on and kind of start to learn about the development process Mm -hmm. behind the scenes. It's another way that they're starting to tackle it. So yeah, I think things are changing. You know, Matt, that actually
2: reminds me of something in the episode that Dexter got to go do that I'm extremely jealous of. Um, Do you want to explain what power of baseball is, Dexter?
3: Yeah. So it turns out that you're all familiar with NBA Jam. So Power Up Baseball is basically the baseball version of NBA Jam, uh, made by the same company, Midway. And yeah, it, it turned out that Midway had tried to apply the same kind of extreme attitude formula to all of these to different sports, right? Some of them worked out. NFL Blitz. Amazing game, probably the best Incredible. football game ever made. Forget Madden, all this other stuff. I if I'm playing football, I want to be able to tackle people after the play is over. I want 30 yard downs. I want everybody to look like a refrigerator, whether you're a running back or a corner or whatever. Everybody has to look Absolutely. like a refrigerator or it is not football. But and they made power baseball. And um yeah, I mean, going into it, I gotta say, going into it, when I heard that there was this lost game that they just happened to find on somebody's backup discs, I was just, this is amazing, right? This this is groundbreaking. The game itself, I'm not going to lie to you. It kind of sucks. It kind of sucks. <laughs> I see why they didn't release it. Now, okay, I, I have to, I have to caveat that, right? So we played it on an emulator, right? And the thing is the game is actually meant to be played on the same kind of cabinet as Golden Tee, if if you know that one, the really annoying mm-hmm. when you walk into a bar, or you walk into a pizza restaurant, <laughs> that would always piss me off. I remember walking into, you know, a bowling alley or a pizza restaurant, and I would see the little glow of an arcade machine. I was, oh, they got an arcade, yeah, and I'd walk over and it'd be goddamn Golden Tee. And it's just, <laughs> how are you wasting? cabinet space with this machine that I cannot... I mean, you might as well put that other Hunter game I can't stand that game. Dexter. you better be careful. I've been
4: trying to buy a golden tea machine for years, so apparently this is not the golden tea uh, uh, uh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) cast.
1: (laughs) Well, if you get a golden machine, now you
2: know you could backload power-up baseball onto it. Exactly. So that's what it
3: is. So it's, it's meant to be played with the track balls from the same cabinet as Golden T. So the thing is, when you swing, you kind of back up and you swing it forward. So we were playing on an, on an emulator, right, that ran it pretty well, but we're trying to basically emulate the same effect of rolling back and rolling forward on a trackpad with joysticks. And it just doesn't work well. So, and you run with the joypad and you're supposed to be able to run with the trackball and everything. And so it just wasn't the same thing, but the game I got what they were going for, and there's things like you can throw a pitch and you can be on fire, and so it's very NBA Jam-esque in that way. It just didn't, for me, it didn't land, right? But knowing that it was made, knowing that it existed, knowing that people actually put all this effort into developing this game and applying the same approach to baseball and what was going through their minds as they were trying to create this and seeing all the art assets and and all these other things, It's I'm I'm glad it exists. I'm glad it's out there. And maybe somebody will enjoy the game more than I did, but I feel like in playing it, what was going through my mind was thinking that the value of the game as a fun game is, is entirely secondary to the fact that this should absolutely be preserved. It should absolutely be out there. And we should absolutely know that, hey, at one point, midway, high off the success of NBA Jam, they gave baseball a shot. And this is what it looked like. And this is right. what that, that historical context created and birthed. I think that that is so valuable. And were it not for the fact that somebody found it in a box of discs at the house of a man who worked on it, who passed away some time ago, we would never know. We'd never know. Yeah. And it's just wild to think about.
2: Yeah, that's incredible. I uh, that whole project to me is such a great snapshot of that era of arcade games, and and it's it's wild to think about the fact that that's something that for decades we didn't even know was in development. Not only was it not only was it a surprise when I heard about this, it was like the sort of like unknown unknown surprise. You know, you know what I mean? There's the stuff yeah. where you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I heard some people talk about da da da. Like Harry Carey is the announcer, right? The Chicago. Guy is the yes. announcer oh, in wow. that yeah. game which is wild. It's yeah. like an unbelievable yeah. coup that they got him. And and so the idea that that's out there in the world is is fascinating. Um so yeah, it's yeah, like I mean, hey, this, well, this but,
3: isn't just video game history. It's it's video game history, it's baseball history, it's baseball history, history. Right. Chicago history. It yes. is so many different this the confluence of all of these different histories and all these different really important historical times and phenomenon coming together. And we almost lost the whole thing, right? We really
2: could have lost the whole thing. I'm sure if you are not someone who cares about this stuff and you're listening to us say, it's very important that we got this bad game (laughs) to be able to be played again. (laughs) You must think we're out of our minds. But like, I I think if you care about a medium in this way If you care about, you know, the the history of something that you love in a way that's more than just about consumption. You know, I, I think a lot of us care about games in more than a way that it's just snack food. You know, this is – it's like caring about cooking. It's like caring about a whole meal. You care about where the meat came from. You care about where all your greens came from. You want that – you want to know the, the history of all the ingredients and you understand that a meal is more than just a thing you eat. It, it tells a story. And when you care about something like that, even these little, you know, false starts like power of baseball – are really important to understanding the whole thing, or, or maybe it might not be important to you specifically, but it's important to someone else in the scene that you're in, and you know that that could inspire them to go try to make their version of that baseball game, to go try to make something that speaks to that era in in games, and and having that information has so many positive knock on effects that you you can't even start to catalog them necessarily. So I you know I, I think that if you're on the outside looking in, we might we might sound like madmen. Um, but if you're in on it or if you can think <laughs> about something you care about in that same way,
3: it might start to make sense to you, you know? Yeah. And I think I think one other thing that I definitely want to kind of underline here is that just as you were saying, some people might watch us talk about this and say, yo, what are y'all on about? You're really getting this excited about a game that you don't even like? <laughs> Why? Right? But But it's important to think that, to realize that the people who are their own blood, sweat, and tears, right, working to preserve this history, they're still at a point where they're very much realizing that a lot of people really just don't get it, right? I mean, Frank, was, Frank Cifaldi was telling me that they have other games that they've located that are similarly groundbreaking, right? And there's a lot of people who would say, oh, just drop the ROM." Upload it to the internet. Let us have it, right? But what he was telling me is we can't do that. We have to roll it out. We have to announce it. We have to make sure that it is, the, the announcement of it is perfect. That's why they went to all the trouble of building, the orig- you know, building an original cabinet so that people could actually see the original context of the game, what it's supposed to look like, right? But the reason for that is because they want to make sure that when they release it, when they announced to the world that they found this game that people thought were lost or maybe even didn't realize existed at all, the people that it's presented to them in a way that they can really understand the full gravity of it, right? And that's because what I got from him was that they're still at a point where because people don't really truly respect, even the game companies themselves really don't respect the value of these games that they feel like they have to be so strategic in presenting it so that every time they put something out they can't do it halfway they really have to make sure that you know here is the game in its full glory and its original context and here is why you should care and just the the intent there the the amount of thought that they're putting into obtaining something and then releasing it in a package that everybody will appreciate it to so basically you know it's they're they're basically trying to convert a world that is a little bit skeptical still about whether these are just toys and trash that be should be thrown away when the next version when the next revision of consoles comes out we're still at that point i think that's important to keep in mind
5: mm-hmm. no i think austin you nailed it when you when you said that there's a perception that it's junk food right Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I remember growing up, it felt like every cartoon that I watched had at least one episode where the villain was like a video game manufacturer. um, And the, the message was back then video games were going to rot your mind. Right. And we are mm-hmm. still living with the fallout from that from that
2: perception. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And as you can tell, because we were all excited about a bad baseball game, our minds aren't rotted at all. Our minds work perfectly <laughs> well. <laughs>
3: We are all perfectly healthy and well-adjusted <laughs> individuals. But yo, I think we have to wrap it up fairly soon. Is there any 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 major topic anybody wants to make sure we hit before we get out of here?
5: Yeah, the only other thing I can think about is the the specifics of like tying it back into Matrix Online and talking about the specifics of what does it mean to archive a digital world that has different progressions, right? Different iterations. Right. But I think... Mm. But other than that, I think we've covered it pretty well.
3: Okay. In I mean, if you, wanna, if you wanna if you wanna bring it up real quick, I mean <laughs> I mean, this this is one thing. Y'all remember, you remember when The Life of Pablo dropped and I'll Kanye a little bit yeah. after? Yeah. And right after it went streaming, Kanye tweets out, hey, hold on, I'm gonna take it down. I gotta fix wolves. And I know people who are archivists. This is, their, this is their livelihood. And I remember talking to them about this. And just the conversation was, wait, now you can't have the original version of the song anymore. Because Kanye at that point was saying, there's never going to be a CD. And that the idea to for music listeners that the song that you have in your iPod or your iPhone or whatever it may be, or your CD player, that's going to be erased and replaced with a different version. It's just, wait, I don't want this. There's something that feels kind of wrong about that. There's something that feels wrong about, shoot, I mean, replacing or sanitizing stuff like in Tom Sawyer, right? There's something that just feels wrong about that. But then you realize this is something that video game players, we've been dealing with basically since online updates were possible. You just get used to this, is that the game that you play today, the game, especially the game you log into today, if you log in a week from now, it's going to be different. And there is absolutely no going back. And I think that's something that maybe is lost within all this talk about archiving, is yeah, we've got these physical cartridges, but there's some stuff that we haven't really figured out how to save.
4: Well, like the like the original, the original Ocarina of Time, when that was released on the N64, there was some controversy over, uh, there was like some chanting in one of the levels, like related to some of the right. music in the game. And that was an original Mm -hmm. run of it. And then they immediately pulled that off shelves, like remanufactured copies of the game with a new build, a new version of the game. And then that's the one that probably the majority of people ended up playing but that that wasn't a patch that was like them literally taking physical items off of the shelf like reproducing these cartridges like putting them back out um and it's just wild how much that has you know changed over the decades where it was like a physical item that had to be changed when there was you know these days it would just be something silently that happened while you were sleeping and then you know you're lucky enough if there's a youtube video the next day that explains to you what was what was changed (laughs)
2: Totally. I mean, you know, the most recent update on Destiny, Beyond Light, the big new expansion, got rid of a bunch of old content. They put it in the vault like it was an old Disney movie, you know what I mean? They said, maybe we'll come back to this stuff again later, maybe we we rework it in some way. But if you want to go play the Destiny 2 original campaign right now, I guess you would have to go find a physical CD copy and then... Try to play it offline. I don't think you can play Destiny Two offline. You just can't play that original campaign anymore. It's gone. Um, and, it's and, but gone. even in, it's just gone, right? And, and even in less, you know, um, um, outlier uh, situations, you to go back to my love of the Matrix online. That was a game that had a story that updated month to month as new events happened. You know spoilers for the matrix online circa 2008 morpheus gets killed (laughs) they kill morpheus in that game right no i know sorry 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 (laughs) But um, and it was it was sad. You know, there was a funeral, there was a whole bunch of there was a whole bunch of stuff, there was a betrayal, you know. Uh, but the 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 game just changed naturally from month to month as the story came out. How do you even go about archiving that? Do you save cutscenes? Do you try to copy the game in like different states and try to save it so that you could jump into a certain time period in the game? Those are really tough questions for archivists and historians to figure out. If they are, if they can even figure out how to make a game like that playable in the first place, so you know it's an uphill, it's an uphill climb to to get this stuff working. There's all sorts of unique uh, challenges to do it. I'm thankful that there are so many people, or or that there are a handful of people really who are so determined to figure out how to do it.
4: There's a really specific point on that too, where uh, with World of Warcraft, you know, and you know, persistent online game, um, a couple of years back, there were folks who wanted to play the original launch version of World of Warcraft, which is a really different, less streamlined experience than you know the uh, the game that they've arrived at now, you know, t- ten years mm-hmm. in. Um, it's harder. It's harsher. Um, and it's just it's just different. It's its nostalgic at this point, because even even playing the same game for a decade, what it was like a decade ago has now become part of your, um, you know, your, your emotional journey with that game. And so people there was no way to play that because the game just updates. It just patches. It becomes the new version of the game that they've they've added to. And so people found ways to put up servers to play the original version of of that game and they weren't trying to say that we're not going to buy the new expansions we're not going to engage with the new updated of world of warcraft we just want to play this original version because it's so different and we want to just relive our memories of this original version of world of warcraft and they got it up and running and blizzard shut it down they said this is you know this is illegal this you're you're you're, you know, you're infringing on the terms of service like you're not allowed to do this and when they shut it down it caused such an, an uproar that as a result, they had to meet with members of the community and then work with them to come up with a solution, which was, was then became the officially sanctioned World of Warcraft classic, which allows you to then play the original version of World of Warcraft sanctioned by Blizzard. You know, they, they put it together um, and now allows you to do what the fans uh, did themselves. But as an instance in which the fans showed there was a not just an interest but a commercial opportunity for players uh-huh. to interact with an original version of a game in which the company themselves showed zero interest in allowing to happen because typically the idea is you want to play the new shiny fancy version of this yeah. why would you want to play the old broken one and the fans said, like no there are millions of people who want to play the old broken one because they fell in love with the old broken one there is no world of warcraft 64 like the equivalent is the 1.0 of that game when it launched and so now those games live side by side you can play the classic version you can play the updated version and people who play the old one they know what they're getting into they know they're going to play have something fundamentally different but they can live side by side because at this point they may as well be different games even if they can't they started Mm. from the same place
2: and the thing that's so frustrating about that, Patrick, is imagine there were a few hundred thousand less people. Imagine Blizzard had said, you know what, this just isn't commercially viable. They would shut down those servers and then not create World of Warcraft Classic. There are so many things that because they're not, you know, they don't have market value, the official stance is you can't play it. You're not allowed to, you're breaking some, some license, you know, this is RIP uh, uh, and you're not allowed to engage with it at all. And again, like to me, it just comes back to the ways in which capitalism limits us to experience art sometimes. There's so many old games that it would be illegal to download a ROM and play it, but also they're not being offered up on. And I can't pay anybody for it. You know, there are old MS-DOS no. games, old PC games. They're just not available to play legally and to to try to get, get them to download them illegally would would you know, get you in trouble with your ISP or whatever. Um, and so that is that is the frustration I think a lot of folks feel that lead to piracy, that lead to leaks and 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 other things like that.
3: Yeah, I mean it's this really is the the Fry from Futurama meme, right? Take my money,
2: take my money. There's nobody yeah. who will
3: take your money. <laughs> All that you can do is just get sued. But anyway, yo, so this has been a lot. Uh, we can keep going on this, but I think that this has inspired me to play. My original box copy of Earthbound. (laughs) So, gentlemen, if you will excuse me. (laughs) Matt, Patrick, Austin, thanks so much for joining me on this one, man. Thanks Thanks for having us. Thank you. And for the rest of y'all, we'll see you back next time for more of Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games.
0: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes
5: per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: Welcome back, y'all. Now it's time for the Reset Roundtable. Joining me this time is Motherboard staff writer Dita Jackson and gaming documentarian Phil Nolan. What's up, y'all?
6: Hey, y'all.
7: Hey, nice to talk to you.
3: Yeah, yeah. So let, let's get into it. So, you know what? Let's let's just let's just start off with this favorite fighting game of all time. Gita, what's yours?
7: <laughs> I was actually just talking about this with Phil. Um, when I was a kid, my older brother bought Guilty Gear X, and something Ooh. about the complete nonsense of those arc system anime fighters just holds a special place in my heart. Also, just how funny is the name Soul Bad Guy?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I can respect that, Phil. What about you? Um, it it's a
6: it's controversial as to whether this is part of the formal fighting game community, but it has been and will always be Super Smash Bros. Melee for the Nintendo GameCube. It oh, is
3: starting off immediately. Okay, I hear you. It
6: is the <laughs> sickest game ever, as some would say.
3: <laughs> I will. I'm gonna throw you a curveball, and I'm just gonna be honest with you. For me, there is something that will always hold a place in my heart in Killer Instinct. OG, Super Nintendo, Killer Instinct. Not the arcade version, not gold. Regular old Killer Instinct. Just There's something about Orchid's damn near infinite combo. It's not infinite. It's what I think 21, 22 hits. Just the fact that you can just keep cartwheeling people in the face. That was my go-to right there. Just get Orchid, just cartwheeling people in the face. Anybody who's a noob, doesn't know how to block properly, can't break the (laughs) combo. That is just... It every you just when you, it's one of those things when you get stressed out, I'll just get stressed out and be like, you know what, I need to get orchid. I need to cartwheel some people in the face, and and just my day is made at that point. So that's for me. I know nobody Respect. plays that game anymore, but you know Respect
1: that's, you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's the go-to. And no, no, you know, no negativity towards the new iteration of Killer Instinct. That's cool too, but for me, it's it's the old one. But. <laughs> But Ma- melee man, okay, yeah, we're 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 gonna get into that. But <laughs> let's we're gonna get into that. But let, let's start off a little bit bro- more broadly. Um, what is it about the fighting game community that you think makes it so different from every other game subculture out there?
6: Um, what's special about the fighting game community to me is how much it goes beyond the computer screen, and much beyond the veil of anonymity, right? Like uh, for a lot of fighting game players. Uh, whether it was going to the arcades back in the day or going to events, Mm. local events and major events now, a lot of times you are physically next to the person you're playing against. And there's like a personal connection there that I think is really special. Um, And to further that one-on-one aspect, a lot of uh, competitive games are very team-based and there's a lot of other people in those games you can blame your problems on, but in fighting games you really have to, you can't flame anybody else. It's you. It's your fault if you lose. You have to hold the L yourself and I think like building that accountability for yourself as a player helps you play the game at a deeper level. And as you go deeper and deeper into a fighting game, it just becomes very personal and satisfying.
7: I think a lot of that in-person stuff is what I love about the fighting game community as well. Although I'm sort of, you know, as someone who's not very good at fighting games, admittedly, I'm more interested in how the community has, the formation of the community is so unique compared to a lot of other uh, competitive esports or just sort of games communities in general. You know, especially in New York City, the fighting game community is very consciously a Black-led community. Or one that just has, like, it's one of the rarest spaces in games that has, like, a majority of Black players. You know, when you go to these in-person events, a lot of these slang terms and stuff, you can tell, like, come out of Black culture. And for that reason, it, it feels like a little bit different from a lot of video game cultures, even as someone that does not really play fighting games, there's just something so special that you want to really just cherish about that kind of community with mm. just, you know, really, really different from a lot of the other games I play.
3: Yeah, I mean, the, there's one thing that I think some of us, as, as people who play a lot of video games, can kind of lose sight of sometimes is that some of this stuff is kind of impenetrable to an outsider, right? I mean, try try explaining Dota to somebody who's never played it.
1: It's just, <laughs> that's it.
3: You can't do it, right? I... I do not understand what those people are doing at all for the life of me, but a fighting game you can this, this, this I was just thinking of this, y'all know the the meme where the dad walks in and it says, "Are you winning, son?" Yeah. y'all know this meme yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like that that is the one fighting games is the one game where dad doesn't have to ask a question. He's yeah. just, "Oh, yeah, son's winning or losing or <laughs> as the case may be is yeah. A complete novice, somebody who's never seen a video game before, can look at the screen and intuit pretty quickly whether the person playing is doing a good job or not, who's winning, who's losing. It's so obvious, right? Where a lot of other games aren't.
7: Yeah, I I sort of compare it to like the communities that spring up around pickup basketball. It's more similar Mm. to that than something like Overwatch League, which is a franchise model where it's been created by a corporation from the top down. Here, we're looking at a community that arose around the act of playing the games themselves. And so they have a different relationship to that kind, those kinds of games and a different temperament, I think, than other kinds of eSports communities. One where slang really sort of like populates itself within the community very quickly. And it's a very much, you know, one where they're very, very defensive of what they've built because they've built it themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these things uh, you can see as analogous to other kinds of sports, especially sports that are played with teams, but have individuals who do the, something like, weirdly enough, like a tennis or something like that, where um, a lot of the gameplay, you know, whether or not you win or lose, I guess baseball is another good example, is dependent on your individual actions and the choices you make. Mm -hmm. Um, But also it's just like, it reminds me so much of the way that, Kids play, you know, pick up basketball, play baseball in the street, or, yeah. you know, play soccer games in their backyard. Yeah, you really just step up and then up. play, yeah. Yeah, you really can just step up and play. And it really becomes very, it's very accessible in places where they have arcades, especially in New York. Well, I mean, when arcades were illegal to have open.
3: <laughs> right, true, true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Phil, I mean, you, you spent a lot of time in a bunch of different scenes, uh, in a bunch of different subcultures with games. How do you? If we're talking, if we're talking, say, accessibility, how do you find that plays into the popularity and even the subculture within the fighting game community?
6: It's tough to say that these games are accessible because there's a lot of people who are like very legitimately daunted by uh, the high level execution and the Mm. high level of competition on display at your run of the mill fighting game tournament. For a lot of games, even to go into your local expecting to win even a set is a is a very arrogant assumption. Like when you first step <laughs> foot into a game, you're going to have a lot of trouble at the gate. But if you care yeah. and you have that like drive and you really don't want to lose and you really do want to win, there is a level of work that you can put in and there are people who would love to help you. Um, mm-hmm. There's, you know, for some of these games, there's decades of research, videos, uh, forum posts to go through if you really do want to take that leap. There's always that kind of thing to, to, to mine through and to follow on your path. And I mean, to accessibility in general, like um, I like to compare the NFL and League of Legends as a major sport and a major esport that are both very arcane to someone who steps in on day one. Like it's impossible to parse what's happening in football, even watching the people next to you get unnecessarily upset at -hmm. the game constantly and you have no idea what's happening. Um, League is very dense as well, and it still has an immense Audience, uh, player base, and it's pretty successful. And I think just kind of melding the two worlds where it is like bar go down as someone gets hit in a fighting game, and also unpacking the nuance of what's happening in a footsies exchange, I think it rewards newcomers and people who've been there the whole time alike. And I think that's just really great,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, same thing like soccer, you can say, okay. They put the ball in the goal. That's yeah. probably a good thing. But really, fully understanding, okay, why you want to run a four-four-two, why you want to run this formation, what did this person do in, in terms of this pass or that pass, and really setting something up. If you don't really fully understand it, you don't understand the intricacies. And I, I mean, shoot, yeah, I mean, any any newcomer can learn fairly quickly how to throw a hadouken. But understanding things like frames and all that sort of thing, I mean, that is.
7: That's where I'm hopeless. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's the point where I'm just like, my brain shuts off. I can't understand information anymore. (laughs) I'm done. But uh, Phil, I actually wanted to ask, Hmm. what separates someone who is just a beginner and is just learning about, oh, when you get hit, the bar goes down and that means I'm going to die sooner? And someone who's really invested in the culture and has decided they want to be a part of the fighting game community and learn these games in a little bit more of an intimate way.
6: Um, are you asking, like, like what what you would see in the way they play? Something like that?
7: Like, you know, to make a Destiny 2 analogy, I went from someone who just, like, played strikes with my friends once a week to someone who really pays attention to their light level and pre-ordered, you know, Beyond Light, the new expansion. Like, what's, what's that step over the line when you're no longer just in, into this for fun and now you're into this as, mm. like, a serious thing?
6: I think, um... I think levels of comfort in the game is like a, uh, an important thing to observe in yourself as a player. As you kind of set on that journey, the more and more you play, um, you're always, no matter what you do, you're building up your experiential knowledge, right? Because mm-hmm. in a game like Melee, every interaction is unique in a little bit of a way. Like, um, there are things that are intrinsically familiar about their Uh, the interaction, like what move a person's using in relation to where they are in the map. But there's always little micro things that are different about them. And as you play through the game, those become less surprising, you develop more um, consistent and dependable responses to your opponent's moves. And Mm. furthermore, as you play the game, you do start to take into account um, their percent damage on the bottom or the amount of meter they have left in Street Fighter. Uh, Mm. Those those choices inform what you're going to do next. And it is just kind of a matter of playing. And uh, for a beginner, they might not be able to fully unpack those things as they're playing themselves or watching good people play. But there are commentators who can help you with that when you're watching the show. And um, as you play, you just kind of naturally develop that level of layers of awareness is. Yeah, I I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with layers of awareness. That's that's the term like you just yeah. become more cognizant mm. of more things become innate and more things you're paying attention to are deeper in the game.
7: It's like learning a language in a lot of ways, you know. You learn yeah. vocab, basic vocab, and how to say your name, and then you have to learn more grammar and more grammar and more grammar until you really understand the building blocks of what you're playing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And then you're writing Shakespeare, but also throwing <laughs> fireballs at somebody's face. Excellent analogy, Gita. It's I'm beautiful. sorry for taking it much further than than I should have. That's my <laughs> bad. <laughs> but yo, th- there was something you were talking about a-, a second ago, though, Gita, which is so with with fighting games, right? Mm-hmm. So, I think I think when when anybody looks at the history, right, of fighting games, I think we can understand why it was diverse, right? We understand what the scene was in New York, right, where where people were hanging out, the arcade was a place you could hang out that was not home, right? But mm-hmm. the fighting game community is really diverse now. And mm-hmm. I think I'm curious about that connection because yes, I understand the OGs were at the were at the arcades back in the day. But there's a new generation who was never in the arcades, and they've kind of grown up almost separated from that whole thing. But it still looks like that. Why, why does the fighting game community still look so diverse, even removed from the physical locations in the city centers where it came from?
7: So right now, we're dealing with a New York that is under lockdown. So we can't have a lot of the physical in-person events mm. that have sort of fostered this kind of community community. Uh, At all (laughs) right now, like arcades are closing. Some of them are losing money and losing their leases. But, you know, if you think about it in terms of sort of ways black culture has changed or remained the same in many, many ways, you know, um, the the thing that is still true about black culture is that a lot of black people do still live below a poverty line. Or, you know, a lot of people, black parents, are still not gonna buy their kids a video game console because their good friend has one. You can just go to his house to play. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) it's a lot of things have definitely remained the same economically and socially within the black community to lead them towards, you know, they have a game and it's their only game to play, or their friend has this console and it's the only console on the block, so you're gonna play it. You know, that combined with these in person events being sort of mired in black culture. You know, we have a lot, often a lot of black sh- um, commentators, a lot of black players, a very a audience that's been black for a long time. Mm-hmm. And they're already speaking a language that's familiar to you. You're already in a social situation that feels very familiar to you. It's no, it feels not very different from going and like watching a sporting, a sports event. It's maybe the most sportsy to me of esports, mm-hmm. um, But you also have, I mean, I think that, that sort of that fluency of of culture, the the one that has just been the same for a very long time, does just make it easier for black people who are interested in video games to feel accepted within the confines of this that culture. Now, I was just mm-hmm. thinking about on the way over to the office today, about um remembering to, in the beginning of the summer of 2020 when a lot of God, was that summer or was that spring? I feel like Time is just compressed greatly.
1: Doesn't exist. At some point. It's a a
7: social
3: construct. (laughs) (laughs)
7: Um, Just remember, you know, a lot of the the Street Fighter community on Reddit ended up doing charity streams for Black Lives Matter charities. And this Mm. was a huge wave within, like, within different fighting game communities at the time, around the time of, you know, George Floyd's death and the protests surrounding that. Um if you are a black person who is looking at different gaming communities and you see one area where the corporations that make these games and the players that play them are struggling to say what you know is true which is that black lives matter mm-hmm. and another community that is just all in already without having to be told you're going to go to that other one. Now, even as someone who doesn't play fighting games, I find the black, you know, the the fighting game community to be a extremely welcoming space, even as someone who's just kind of getting into it as a spectator.
3: Yeah, yeah, that w- that was definitely something. And I- I'm curious, um, Phil, what your thoughts are. I feel like over the summer, right, we all saw the companies putting up the black squares, right, putting out the little statements. Mm-hmm. I felt like on a grassroots level, the community around fighting games were actually. I mean, I saw people raising money, which I'm not sure that one would expect from a gaming subculture. What were you seeing just across the entire landscape of gaming subcultures around different games, Phil?
6: Um, I would say uh, the fighting game community is uh, very quick to support their own in times of crisis. Um, Hmm. Time and time again we see even something as simple as a GoFundMe for um, someone who's very integral to the community and maybe they're going through a family crisis. Uh, We've had some, you know, with the COVID crisis and beyond that, we've had some very unfortunate passings of people and people's family members and the community has always responded in a very impressive and heartening way to support people, even on an individual level. Um, I can think mm-hmm. of uh, younger players going through an incident where one of their parents has passed and you know, not having the money to give them a proper service and that expense being covered. And then some, as soon as that GoFundMe picks up, as soon as uh, various influential voices in the FGC pick up and signal boost that stuff. I think everyone's very quick to... Just look out for each other in the scene, and it keeps feeding, it, feeding into what makes it special. Like that, we're all humans in this scene, and we yeah. we gotta look out for each other.
3: Yeah, I mean, speaking, we let let's get into melee. We can we do that? <laughs> can, can, <laughs> we, can we can we get it? Can we get into that? Can we get into the controversy? <laughs> Go nuts! But you 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 were talking about you when I, when I asked you your favorite fighting game, you immediately jumped to that. But you had a little caveat. Why? Why is that?
6: Um, I feel like the Smash community is in some ways separate from the FGC because it's very mm. large and very honed in, and it is admittedly very difficult to get um, a Smash player from any of the Smash games to like branch over into the other games. Like it is not as commonplace for a Smash player to play other games as it is for an anime fighter player to play every anime fighting game that comes out. Or for a Street Fighter player to play Samurai Showdown or a Tekken mm-hmm. player to be hanging out with the Street Fighter players and supporting them through their journeys. It's just kind of like a way more hard focused community. And um there's there's some event overlap, but there's also tons of events that are just smash centric. So I mm-hmm. think we are part of the FGC. Like almost undeniably, it's just like their their relationship to the greater FGC is a little a little more nuanced.
3: <laughs> just because is it because of the skill sets is it because just the game is just kind of fundamentally at least partially different from a lot of other fighting games or is it a culture what is that that kind of separates smash players from the larger fgc
6: i don't know it's difficult to put your finger on because i am someone who like i got started being passionate about these games in melee but very early on I was, uh, was like, let me try Street Fighter. Let me try this. Let me try that. And I've liked, enjoyed, and participated in many other games as a result. So I don't mm. really have the personal experience to say I understand why Melee people cling to Melee and don't really branch out. But um, it is a pretty distinct skill set in fighting games. Like Melee is called a platform fighter because there, there tend to be platforms on the stage. And that's true of right. games like Rivals of Aether um, and all the other Smash titles. So it is... It does have its own little world of skill set. And I mean, it's difficult to say what makes them unique because I see the same hard work, drive and obsession in a melee player that I do in a, play, in a street fighter player. It's, it's pretty consistent.
7: Mm. Oh, stop me if I'm totally off base, Phil. But part of it also feels like to me how standoffish Nintendo is about participating in the Smash, like competitive Smash fandom, like right. literally at all. That's like another distinction between Smash and specifically Melee and the rest of the FGC, which is like <laughs> happily being ignored, but absolutely definitely being ignored by Nintendo <laughs> as much as they possibly can.
6: So in the fighting game community, I feel like a lot of the developers um, treat it kind of like a an extension of their marketing budget. Um, and it's to very mutual benefit. Like they will increase the pot bonus at a given tournament. They'll sponsor and build a uh, circuit-like system for players to compete in over the course of a year or a season, and I don't think those are particularly backbreaking expenditures for the developers to offer up to the community. And the returns are great, right? Like they're um, kind of doing right by their competitive base, who are you know their most motivated, dedicated, uh, fanatical group of players. Like you really want to show those people that you you know you're there for them. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like Nintendo doesn't. Uh, have the same uh, marketing ambition, for lack of a better term. They don't, you know, there isn't that big expenditure. They very rarely volunteer a pot bonus. And, you know, there have even been rumblings that, like, any attempt to establish a circuit, um, you know, whether it be a Twitch or whether it be Mm -hmm. among the community themselves, any attempt to systemize competitive Melee or maybe even uh, competitive Ultimate in general has been kind of stymied by Nintendo's uh, foo-fooing of like the competitive nature of the game. Uh, there's a meme in Smash culture uh, that we're a children's party game because uh, I guess that's that's it's been thrown around that that was like the intended purpose of the game that it's a children's party game. So a lot of us will say like, oh yeah, I play a children's party game competitively. <laughs> that's
3: really Yo, funny. but but I mean, Nintendo gives you that vibe though. Nintendo really is in some ways kind of like Disney. In that they have very specific here is how you should enjoy our product, and if you do something else, we might not stop you, but we're not putting anything into it. We can't really condone this. It's just hey, you play over there, and it's fine until you do something we don't like, and then we might have to make a phone call or send you an email <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah
3: we haven't
6: had um we haven't seen other developers go through an incident like um. The incident that I'm referring to is Project M, which was a fan-made mod of Super Smash Bros. Brawl that sought to address a lot of the um, competitive lackings that Brawl had brought to the table after Melee had really captured a lot of competitive excitement. Uh, Brawl Mm -hmm. had a moment where there was a pretty relevant competitive base, but it had some pretty serious balance issues. It had um, unfortunate RNG mechanics like tripping built in and the Project M developers sought to remedy a lot of that and it really got off the ground and it was kind of like second fiddle to Melee in a very big way in the early 2010s until, you know, Nintendo, the dinosaur finally turned around and went, what's that? (laughs) No, 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 no. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
7: You know, uh, the big joke among my friends who are really into Smash, my friends like Maddie Myers, who's over at Polygon now, uh, were it just like, sakurai who's the lead developer on smash after ultimate came out there's an image of him sitting in a chair he just says and never ask me for anything ever again <laughs> <laughs> just you know it's it feels like in a way in a very gorilla community in a way that makes me love it you know like i love people who are playing games explicitly in ways their developers don't want them to <laughs> i think that spirit really does speak to the sort of defensiveness the fighting game community can have sometimes. Mm. Because, you know, if if you are playing Smash, you're playing Melee, you know that the company that made this game, low-key, is not interested in you.
6: (laughs) I can neither confirm nor deny these allegations.
3: (laughs) So, this... While we're talking about Smash, I feel like I've got two good people to ask this about. Why is Smash... Why is the Smash Brothers community so black? It feels like Smash is the blackest game out there. Can you help I me mean, with this?
7: <laughs> part of me feels like it's honestly that the GameCube was inexpensive when it came out and they still <laughs> okay. crop up in like used electronic stores regularly. You okay. know, you can get a GameCube now for like pennies on the dollar, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, or if you have a Switch, they make the modified GameCube controller now for the Switch and you can still get into Melee, you know, mm-hmm. if you hack it. Um, and that that I think, I just remember like growing up, you know, growing up for a long time, it was every black man I know has a GameCube. And then for, after a while it switched over to every black man I know has an Xbox. And i do not yes. sure when that switch happened, but for people <laughs> in my age range of like the early thirties, you mm-hmm. definitely know one of your boys had an Xbox and they had Smash.
3: I just remember going to a Melee tournament Mm-hmm. And just figuring, okay, it's video games, and so there's probably gonna be all sorts of people here. We weren't expecting to be the only black people there,
1: mm-hmm. but
3: we were expecting to be in the minority. And then, mm-hmm. and you know, it's me, it's my brother, it's my cousins. We all pull up, and damn near the whole room is black. And we were just, wait, I mean, this is cool.
7: Yeah, but why? It's new. <laughs> <And> no,
3: <laughs> nobody had an explanation. I feel like I think- Phil is the person to ask about this. Phil,
7: yeah, Phil would know.
6: <laughs> I'm hesitant to say that. Uh, the demographics are vastly different from the greater FGC. Um, okay. I think that, and I mean, it depends on your player sample size, but they're, uh, to Gita's point earlier, these are amazingly diverse communities. Like mm. any fighting game event you go to, um, whether it's uh, one of our local series for Smash in the city here, or it's Next Level in Brooklyn, which is where a lot of the more traditional fighting games held their tournaments. Um, yeah, walking in, it's like as a white person, I'm just another person, like I'm not like a mm-hmm. very disproportionate uh chunk of the people there, like it most maybe maybe one third white, and the mm-hmm. other third the other two thirds are kind of all of the above.
7: Mm-hmm. I mean, I just think part of it with these in person things, I mean, Melee, I think had a real special moment with like some really good commentators who yeah. just making up really interesting things to say on the fly that always felt like really connected to hip hop culture with me. But a mm. other part of it is like, yeah, if you're going to these in-person events, you're bringing your boys with you. <laughs> like If you're sure. going to go and you're going to play, you don't want to win or lose without someone to cheer for you. So you're going to be sure. bringing your friends, which are m- commonly from demographics similar to yours. I mm. think it really just goes down to, comes down to like these communities started with this position that being Black did not make you other. And I think that is Mm. different from the ways that other video game fandoms developed their broader communities. You know, um, if you look at just sort of the history of video game marketing, you can see that those had a stronger hand from the sort of corporate overlords to shape what it meant to be a gamer. Whereas Mm. here in the FGC, that definition belongs to the FGC. And that's something they're very proud of
3: yeah I want to I w I wanna I wanna flip it a little bit. If you had if you could only have one special move, if you had to play fighting games for the rest of your life, you have one character with one special move throughout all games period, what are you going with?
7: I have a great story for this one, but it's mostly Ooh. about how I <laughs> really made an ex-boyfriend of mine so angry. <laughs> We were playing Soul Calibur. Please Calibre. elaborate. Yeah, we were playing Soul Calibur on the original Xbox, so he was using the controller with the big hands, which obviously was not going to work for me. I have a tiny the little duke? girl hand. Yes. And um, he was playing Spawn, and he was getting really, really mad at me because I picked this character who is a tiny... I My fighting game characters I like are the small, fast ones. You know, mm-hmm. ones that don't necessarily do a lot of damage, but you can sort of get in and get out quickly. Yeah. Uh, with the, try to. Try to just chip away at health, and mm-hmm. this one character had a like a low jab move that he could not figure out the timing on. It was one jab with their sword, uh, up, and then one jab with the sword down. But he would always forget to block the downward one, and then I could uh-huh. just sneak in there and combo him until he died. And he got <laughs> so angry that he had he like wouldn't let me go to bed until he lo- until he won and I lost because <laughs> I would just <laughs> cheese that move over and over and over again. It's just, if the game allows you to play it a certain way, I'm going to play it that way. I'm <laughs> I'm going to play it in a way that makes you incredibly angry.
3: Wow. Okay, Gita, give give me give me the sound bite then. Which which character and what move and why? <laughs> well,
7: she just was, I think her name was Zhao Mei, but she just said, eh, like, every time, which somehow made it even funnier. <laughs> she was just going, eh, eh, and he would be getting just rip shit angry. <gasps> oh.
3: Wow. Yeah. Wow! Very don't supportive. play games
7: against me. I'm very awful. supportive
3: partner. Gita, you know, I see that. <laughs> I see that. Bill, how about you?
6: Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of of my favorite things across the games. There's um, Urien in and Street Fighter. His Aegis Reflector is such a mm. silly setup tool that I adore. Uh, but if I had to pick one, it would have to be in melee Falco's Down Air, which is a a downward yes. corkscrew kick with just. Mm. Just incredible properties. Like, I believe it does 10% damage off the top of my head. It's It does, like, a soft spike, so it hits them downward. It has combo potential. It has execution potential. It's one of the first moves when I was really playing the game that I really was like, yeah, this is going to be everything I do. And then you would watch yeah. top players like, yeah, this is most of what they do, too. Like, <laughs> it's just that such rocks. a good button. you love a good so
7: button. If you were saying that in real life, though, Phil, would you say Falcon Kick every time also? <laughs>
6: I would love to. All of Kevin Falcon's <laughs> sound bites are outstanding.
3: Like, yeah, he's
6: so good. He has very feel- visceral grunts.
3: I mean, my mind again, I got to go back to Orchid on Super Nintendo, Killer Instinct. Just the rhythm of that one combo where she does the upside down kind of spinning kick thing. Mm-hmm. That just I could do that all day. I could do it all day. So if you had to give me one character and say, okay, this is all you can ever play, any fighting game, put that into whatever game. Just the rit—it's—it's—it's. It's, it's some, there's something about I wonder how y'all feel about this. There's something about the rhythm in a fighting game and it feels And rhythm, I mean that in a musical sense, right? When you get into the groove and you're really feeling it, and you're, it doesn't matter if you're fighting against a computer or another person or even just practicing on yourself. It's like playing the drums. It's like playing an instrument because you can really feel it. And you can feel, okay, boom, boom, boom. All right. Lower this. Upper that. You know what I mean? Right circle. Whatever. It, you you can feel it. And it's like playing music almost.
7: I was saying to Phil before we started filming uh, that I still remember some of the combos from Guilty Gear X and Guilty Gear X 2. Yeah. I, I was a jam player. And, you know. She's an easy player to start with. She, my brother recommended her to me because <laughs> I was not very good at video games at the time. And he was like, she, she's easy. You'll figure her out really easy. Uh, mm. it, it is true that like once you figure out how to press those buttons in sequence in the correct way, you will just remember that. It's like riding a bike. And it will feel the same every time you do it. Yeah. And that rhythm will become very familiar. It's, it's very comforting in a way to be able to, to go back to it and still be able to make her do the things that i used to be able to make her do.
6: On a micro level, if you watch a good player's hands while they're playing on a fight stick or a good player's hands while they're working on a gamepad, there it's really beautiful. Like the the control, the discipline, the crazy things they can do with ease with perfect muscle memory consistently. And on a macro level, i just have this like very serene feeling of relief when i like walk into a venue and i hear whether it's at a Smash tournament, you hear the the high pitched hum of a CRT monitor and mm. the clack of sticks everywhere, just like like a cacophony. Mm. And the same thing going to like a normal fighting game tournament where you can hear the buttons and the sticks yeah. um, over everything else. That's like the one noise that is just kind of like a very high noise floor that you're just awash in. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's very you, you could
3: hear it if you if you're familiar with the game, and especially if somebody's playing on sticks, you can tell what move they're doing almost. Mm-hmm. It's just okay. Oh, this is a charge move. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. That's quarter circle forward. Okay, I probably know what they're doing. That's probably a Hadouken. It's it is it's weird how sort of physical and almost primal some of this stuff is with a fighting game that you I I don't see that I don't feel it anyway in in another type of game.
6: And it also it tells you kind of a player's story as a player. Like old school mm. players had to develop different. Um, habits to deal with the limitations of various systems, like modern fighting games have a lot more buffering, a lot more um, forgiveness in the execution of various moves, but like old school players still have the habits that they had to develop in games like Street Fighter 2, which had very tight windows for things, and uh, players who do like pianoing, where they'll hit the same button twice with two fingers, uh, they still just do it because they just always did it, even though there's no real use for it in the current situation, it's just like something they've always done, and it's crazy to see somebody who's like like yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. So I mean, we're we're talking about all the positive stuff, right? And so, as as tight knit and as supportive as we've all seen the fighting game community have been, there's been a lot of bad stuff that's happened that we've heard about recently, right? Probably plenty of stuff that we haven't heard about, right? I mean, I'm just even thinking of in recent months, right, where within the fighting game community, there's been all these allegations coming out recently. I mean, racism, um, sexual abuse, sexual assault, all these other sorts of things. And I mean, what, what does that do to a community that is so tight knit?
6: So it's been a really galling year, but I I, I think it, it's in a good way because these things are finally coming out. Like some of these things mm. are decades old, these incidents that have occurred. And once a couple people came forward with their stories, a lot of other people felt safe and supported to come forward too. And yeah. it's, you know, like I said, it it makes me feel terrible that these people went through these things and it makes me feel responsible in some ways for not knowing enough or just like assuming something was amicable when it wasn't from a certain person. You know, there's a lot of responsibility we have for like how many minors there are in the scene and uh, people who can be exploited and taken advantage of like that, that, you know, there's no, there's no centrality. There's no like cop there or whatever. Who's like Mm going to be there to take responsibility or be watching over everything. So there's a lot of room for that, but like, yeah, I think that everyone finally started to come forward and we started to deal with these problems as a community is a good thing because now these people are gone, have been removed and people Mm -hmm. who might think to do the same might think again, because everyone's kind of consolidated around each other in a better way going forward. And I know that a lot of tournament organizers and community figures are in the process of developing a better framework for reporting and preventing uh, suspicious behavior and things that might lead to worse.
7: This is um, controversies along these lines. You know, um, this year, this past year, uh, the the whole video game industry seems to have finally had a Me Too moment of sorts, where Mm. I know Ubisoft... There was a series of firings of when allegations about several different developers uh, at Ubisoft came forward that they were behaving in a sexually inappropriate manner with fans. Um, And I know that around the same time, some of the stuff that Phil's talking about in the FGC came out. Um, am I wrong or was that what led to the cancellation of this year's Evo?
6: Um, this year's Evo... I know they were planning some sort of online component, and they decided to drop it because these allegations came to a head, yeah, uh, relatively close to the event. So they had to kind of um, depose the current leadership and yeah. kind of start over from there because it was someone very high up in the Evo tree, in theory. Which again, the- this is
3: this stuff yeah. is that is monumental. Yeah. I mean, that's not just that's not some small little local thing. We're talking about the event mm-hmm. canceling it.
7: Yeah, because I was so yeah. shocked when they said they were canceling it. But as as you know, what Phil is indicating is like they basically didn't have any choice. If it's so far up the the chain that you have to redo the entire structure of leadership, then you can't have an event that year. That makes mm. sense to me. Uh, it reminds me so much of like what happened to sorry to totally change tracks, but reminds me so much of what happened to Megan the Stallion this year, where she was shot by Tory Lanez and. um then had to face a bunch of people who were telling her, no, you didn't, or it wasn't mm-hmm. him. But eventually, she was able to get the rest of the hip-hop community to rally around her. Uh, right. Ended up writing an op-ed in the New York Times about her experience with misogynoir, which is like black racism and sexism against Black women specifically, right. is what that re- term refers to.
3: Yeah, I mean, how what is it like within the community since all these allegations have come out? I mean, are people feeling like it's moving forward? Are people feeling like it's destroying itself from within? I mean, is is there a positive path forward for this?
6: I think there is a positive path forward from this. But um, due to the COVID circumstances, there really hasn't been any way to take action, like to make it a safer place or what have you
1: Hmm.
6: going forward because there haven't been events, right? Like this all kind of happened. All of the things that did occur uh, were largely started at events like people meeting each other in real life and then you know there was a lot of like um incidents that started because like one person In a lot of these events uh players might have 20 people in one hotel room during an event and a lot okay. of those situations were situations where people were able to or did something that was uh, very not okay and mm-hmm. those were a lot of the things that were coming up just things that took place at events and um Yeah, there just hasn't been an event and we don't know when there's going to be another event because like much like uh, in-person concerts in-person tournaments are going to be one of the very last things to return to normal if and when COVID ends and uh, I guess the best the community can do especially in a scene like Smash where there really isn't a lot of centrality is to try and build that centrality, try and get as many tournament organizers signed on to a unified code of conduct as possible Mm -hmm. and uh, try and really enforce that and the community stepped up in a good way but there's still a lot of you know very unfortunate um vocal support for like people who have done something that's really not okay and they really should never be able to come back again um yeah but a lot of that's just like online a lot of that's coming from like very aggressive and obnoxious 14 year olds who are like who cares they're good at the game like that's like the best defense these people can muster but they are loud yeah. mm-hmm. and they are uh frustrating
7: yeah, I mean, it needs not be said, but if if, if you're good at the game is the only defense you have, that's not much of a defense, <laughs> you know. Right?
1: Yeah.
7: <laughs> um, it reminds me so much, like the dealing with a decentralized scene and what that means and how to make it a safer place. Mm-hmm. Now that harm is actually, you know, we know that harm has been been caused by that decentralization. Reminds me so much of the kinds of. Revelations we've learned about a lot of bands that have been on Warp Tour um, and the Me Too movement that sort of passed through the emo scene and a lot of sort Mm -hmm. of smaller punk scenes um, where, you know, touring life is different and you will have, you know, a bunch of people in a van or a bunch of strangers sharing a hotel room, but, Mm -hmm. you know, not having any avenues to report misconduct or having a standard sort of community code of conduct does mean that people who are vulnerable and people who have been abused just don't have anywhere to go. Like the next step for both of these, any community that is facing that is just to decide what your values are and are mm. not. And your values can't be, well, if he's so good at the game, uh, he can get away with doing some really awful things or committing crimes. It has to be right. a little bit better than that.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's weird because because a lot of these allegations did come to light right when the pandemic was happening and basically all in-person events had to shut down, which are really important for the FGC, right? It's there's a lot of talk. You dig what I'm saying, which is to say mm-hmm. that that I think as decentralized as it is, there's there's organizers saying, okay, we're gonna ha- we need a, a you know, we need a code of conduct, we need ways to report bad behavior, things like that. But there's no tournaments yet. There's no tournaments in person. And so for somebody who, who's seen all this, right, who came up with this scene and really cares about it, but now feels unsafe going to one of these things or feels uncomfortable going to one of these things or maybe has seen something, hasn't said anything yet, it hasn't been shown to them that, yes, if you come to our tournament, we're not going to allow any of that stuff. Anybody trying to play any of that stuff, they're booted, they're out forever, you know, that's it. There, there's no assurance, right? And it hasn't been proven. And so right now, a lot of sort of the promises that any bad behavior, any racism, any assault, anything like this, that's going to get you kicked out. Don't care how good you are at the game. That's talk, right? People are talking the talk. At some point, people are going to want to see, are these tournament organizers going to walk the walk? You know what I mean? It feels like that's what we are right now. It's kind yeah. of in a holding pattern.
7: Although Phil is saying that he he feels like the community is adult enough to make these major Mm. steps, you know, when push comes to shove, right?
6: I think ultimately uh, the reason these things have finally been brought to light is because a lot of these uh, people feel like they have the support around them and the understanding Mm. of the general community with which to finally bring these things up and hopefully they get dealt with. And I think a lot of them have gotten dealt with and the reason so many happened this year is because once a couple people stepped up and got support and things were done for them, the, the mm. rest of the people who have had these terrible experiences were able to come forward. And I'm sure there's still even more and there's still more work to be done, but like, like the progress is being made painfully <laughs> slow, very painfully mm. slow, but there is progress. We have organizations like combo Queens and smash sisters that have been present at events for some time. And they are female run and organized events uh, to create a a safe space for women to meet at events, compete with each other and kind of build that camaraderie and safe space that that these are people at any given event who you can absolutely turn to under any circumstance. If your room situation is in flux and you're not you don't trust the people who are offering the room to you, uh, you can go Mm -hmm. to these people and they can go to the organizers or they can help you themselves like these more and more of the community is kind of like stepping up to try and protect their own. And it's really exciting, but it's also, you know, really brutal to have to hear all the terrible things that have happened to people Mm. and feel like more could have been done, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
7: I mean, that's the tragedy of having a Me Too moment is that, yes, it's so good that we are finally talking about these things, but it is so saddening that people have been hurt in ways that has been ignored.
3: Mm -hmm. Do you, I mean, do you feel like the fighting game community is in some ways better able to deal with some of this stuff than other gaming subcultures?
6: I think the fighting game is just, uh, the fighting game community is a more likely place for this sort of thing to happen because of the nature of large in-person events with open brackets. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think you will see this sort of thing, at a major esport where it's invitationals with teams and staff and all of that stuff. So it's tough to um, clock or expect the same sort of issues to surface in the same amount. But um, I think think the community has taken a lot of steps to be self-regulating and be a place to protect each other.
3: I can see the argument, right? That the mm-hmm. FGC has stayed really grassroots, really raw, really gritty, and that that is why all these bad things have happened because there's no corporate oversight for this whole scene. It's just a bunch of scrappy little orgs doing their thing. That is what allowed this bad behavior to happen, and th- that's the argument that I've seen, right? What, how, how do you how does that strike you?
7: Well, I I understand that argument, and in some ways I agree. And that in there there's no body to report things to; you can't report anything. But if you look at traditional sports um, mm. and the governing bodies that they have, there are domestic abuse issues within the NFL, for instance, that are a pretty high. Mm. <laughs> that's a pretty disappointingly high rate of domestic abuse. Yeah. Um, and they have a governing body that is supposed to be responsible for dealing with those kinds of reports. But the issue has not really changed. And it's because the NFL does not necessarily want to change or to do anything more than pay lip service to an issue, you can mm-hmm. see that sort of the rate of concussions. You can see how little they want to change the NFL. But the fighting game community, in contrast, they do want to change, and it's always been important from my perspective that the fighting game community be an inclusive place. That the idea of a meritocracy existing in the fighting game community is very important to the players themselves because mm-hmm. they want it to be a space where it doesn't matter where you come from. If you're good at the game, you will win. And if people are being harmed, then that is not everyone has the same opportunity. And I feel like that that is... The proof is in the pudding, obviously, there, for what, what will lead the fighting game community to become a better and safer, more inclusive environment. It's, it's wanting to change. It mm. separates them from traditional sports in a really important way. Which is funny also because I feel like the FGC, more so than any other esport... Is like the closest community-wise and sort of fandom-wise to traditional sports than something like the Overwatch Week or uh, LOL or Dota. Okay, how's that? Well, it's part of it is um, you get really good sports narratives out of watching something like Evo, even if you don't really understand the games that are being played. I remember something like five or six years ago, I was got on Twitter one night and. Bunch of my friends were saying, oh, you got to check out this thing that's happening with this guy Gamerby at EVO playing Street Fighter. Mm. It's um, incredible. And he had gone in. It was going to be his last tournament ever. He was getting married, and he was like, I'm going to settle down with my wife after this. And this is my last. I was playing for like eight years, so he's kind of aging out. And he lost pretty quickly and then went into the loser's bracket. So in in Evo, there's two brackets. There's a winner's bracket and a loser's bracket. Mm-hmm. So if you get eliminated from the winners, you go to the losers bracket, and then you still have a chance to win the tournament or play the you know, the challenger uh before they go to the final. Um, if you are able to win the losers bracket. And gamer B lost really early on in the winner's bracket, went to the loser's bracket, and beat every single person, often with like just a sliver of health yet doing these really like High level plays, and I was just mesmerized the entire time. And I knew nothing, and I still know next to nothing about Street Fighter. Yeah. And that is always really remarkable. It's like, feels very similar to me as watching the Dodgers win the World Series this year after losing to a bunch of cheaters, you know, year before that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you had to do that. You had to throw listen, that in. There, huh?
7: <laughs> listen, my boyfriend's an Angelino. I have to. <laughs>
3: yo that that actually reminds me, um actually Phil I feel like you you have you have something better to say in here, jump in,
6: yeah, I mean, to gita's point, um, the loser's bracket is where legends are made, and it's one of the most exciting things when it does happen in a fighting game event, like
3: mm-hmm.
6: d- depending on where you fall into loser's bracket because sometimes these are two thousand person brackets. like if you fall into losers in like round one. And then you fall, um, sometimes they reseed, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But like, depending on where you fall in and losers, you might have to play a lot more matches than someone who had simply just won uh, and won through their bracket run. And uh, another Street Fighter moment that uh, means a lot to me, um, one of my favorite players, Nemo, a Japanese player, um, was playing in Capcom Cup finals, like the last tournament of the year. Are Um, you talking about Daigo? uh, No, Nemo. Daigo is also a legend and has done incredible stuff. But okay. Nemo is a, a Urian player, and this is Leighton Street Fire 5's run. I think it's either 2018 or 2017. Um, he uh, makes it through the last chance qualifier tournament. So he wins a tournament before the tournament to make it into mm. the invitational tournament on, I believe, a Friday. And then on Saturday, um, he's seeded into loser's bracket, and he just, if he loses once, he's out, and he did all that for nothing. And he plays through loser's bracket from the very start, and then uh, makes it to third. And normally someone making it to third is like, oh, that's cool. But like that he did so much to get to third was mm. so heralded and celebrated by everyone. And as someone who plays Urian, watching him do that was just it was something wow. else. And that's that just like incredible. Mm-hmm. You yeah. get so many of those little stories, even in every single tournament. Like you get to see somebody who you have some level of energy invested in kind of uh, overshoot their expectations and make a really good splash.
3: I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of person who I'll get on YouTube and I'll just watch sports highlights for just games I don't even play or games I don't even watch. Like, I don't really watch that much basketball, but every now and again I'll just look up old Bulls plays and just One watch time. Michael Jordan just just doing his <laughs> yep. thing, right? I, I,
7: Listen, jump man, jump man, jump man.
3: <laughs> exactly. I can't think of the last time I watched a basketball game from start to finish, but I, w- I would just watch highlights. All yeah. day. And that, I mean, because that takes me to, you know the match I'm talking about, right? Daigo, I think, versus Justin Wong. Evo the moment 37. Oh, see? See? Yeah. You know exactly what I'm talking <laughs> about. Yo, that... Because if, you, if you've if ever used Chun-Li, you know how impossible that was. Blocking every single... That's not... that is That is not human. It was amazing. And I'm just watching it, and I'm just how... There is no way this is gonna happen. And you watch the crowd, you hear the crowd screaming. And I'm just, this is this is absolutely legendary. And at that point, I had when I saw that video, I hadn't played Street Fighter in some time, but I understood what was happening in the same way that you understood when you watch Pele doing his thing, just weaving through defenders. You may have never set foot on a football pitch, a soccer pitch, or whatever, but you understand, okay, what I have just seen, especially based on everybody in the arena screaming. I just watched something that was legendary. That was amazing. That's (laughs) cool. And like the game itself,
6: um, it's exciting and mind boggling the first time you see it. And as you come to understand, like the parry timing and how you'd have to grind that to make that work. And like the situation where he was in, where he's like, all right, he's going to super me. And if he touches me, the chip will kill me straight away. Yeah. The first hits chip will kill me. And he was able to do that. Like the more you unpack it, the more you're like, how am I ever going to compete? Like, how could I do that? It was DeAndre Hopkins with the triple coverage over here.
1: God. Right.
3: Oh, no. That is that is amazing. We have to be able to fair use that, by the way, with all that we talked about that we're fair using that clip. I don't care. But <laughs> you're fair using this clip. Anyways. Well, I
5: mean, uh,
6: the guy who did it on Evo's behalf, uh, we don't know what happened to him. So you <laughs> might as well.
3: Oh, no. Hope hope they're okay. Jeez.
6: No, no. I mean, the guy who got me to oh, oh that's right yeesh okay yeah.
3: well fun fun speaking of fun things um you know we and and i've i've also been get you know, i've been interviewing a lot of people in mm-hmm. the fighting game community right and just top of mind right now is i've, I've talked to a couple of black women who you know they're heavy in the game they're good and and they're also bringing other people into the game other women in the game right Mm-hmm. But some of they're getting support for this, and then on the same hand they're I think they're also feeling like they're not getting the kind of support that they could or that they deserve, right,
7: yeah, I mean, I think um, the issue is is so similar to what's happened with uh Megan the stallion who is. Wait, did mm. you also see her cosplaying as Melina for <laughs> for uh, Mortal Kombat? It was World's sending collide, a lot of... Right? <laughs> the, the FGC was, like, losing their mind a little bit about Megan yeah. the Stallion doing cosplay. But it does remind me a lot of what has happened to her over the past year. She's an incredible rapper, mm. uh, maybe the hottest rapper alive at this point. Uh, I, I love her personally. I bought the Crunchyroll collab sweatshirt that she put out. Um, But, you know, when she not only said that she had been shot by, like, a a male rapper, but said who it was, instead Mm. of support from the black community, what she faced was a lot of questioning, like a, a lot of questioning of why you want to bring these black men down. Yeah. Why are you like not keeping it within the community, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera? Now that broad concept of misogynoir, you know, the act of being misogynistic specifically to a black woman. So your right. misogyny is all wrapped up in your racism. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something that I think a lot of the fighting game community, as these allegations came out, had to actually grapple with in terms of this has been a problem in the scene for a while. And now we're seeing it at its most harmful. You know, black women in the scene they don't feel like they get the support um i mean it's an issue that's across almost every facet of black culture where you know going back to the civil rights movement you'll see men being able to take those big stands for civil rights but Mm -hmm. women who bring up allegations of abuse are told to not make the community look bad You know, as if trying to solve problems for women are trying to make the community look bad. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just black women that face issues. I know Phil mentioned to me that Asian women also see a lot of fetishization within the community and, like, feel very uncomfortable because they're immediately sexually fetishized. And there's been a lot of issues with trans misogyny as well, where people call into question the personhood of trans players within the fighting game community. You know, it's good that things are finally being talked about, but we have to remember as we move into the future where, you know, maybe we are better at calling out these behaviors before they become widespread, that mm-hmm. it's specific to these women being black and these women being trans, these women being Asians. They they face different issues of misogyny based on these other aspects of their identity.
3: Yeah, I mean it, it just seems like it would be particularly painful in community that is so tight knit where when you have, you know, a black woman, when you have an Asian American woman, you know, who's who's really good at the game, who also on the stream happens to talk about something that's happening in the world. Yeah. Or says, hey, you know what, I'd like to bring up some other players who look like me. I would like to be a role model for them. Just for saying that. They're not saying anything wild, not saying anything out of pocket, just saying something like that. Just immediately you do see a certain segment, again, of fighting game community who will say, Oh, why are you bringing race into it? Why are you bringing the race car? Why are you doing this? Why yeah. are you doing that? And you're trying to divide us. It's just, yo, they're just, A, they're trying to play the game. B, they're just speaking their mind. It feels like yeah. it would be particularly particularly disappointing in yeah. a community that is so tight-knit like this.
7: Yeah. I mean, if you are going to fight nights and you're seeing people with their Twitter fingers in real life... You know, you know how they feel about you. That's going to make you feel like shit. That's just going to make you feel really bad. And that's going to make you less likely to want to participate in the culture. You can't on the one hand say that our culture is a meritocracy, our culture is inclusive. And on the other hand, shut down players who try to bring up the ways in which the culture is not fair. But I think, you know, Philip pointed this out earlier, a lot of the people who are Harassing these women or telling them not to talk about these things—that that is the minority. Like this is an old head mentality that's going away. Fingers crossed.
6: Yeah, there's <laughs> there's old heads who do it, and there's also like you know really, uh hopefully just misguided and not already yeah. deeply hateful young people who just you know yeah get that excitement or that that jolt of dopamine from doing it on Twitter or doing something like that because like yeah we've had that happen and even in local scenes in various games here where like someone will say something online in the Facebook group and be like, mm-hmm. who, who is that person? It's like, Oh, they never come to events. Like, well, why are they, what, <laughs> what are, who are these people? What are they doing? Like, yeah.
7: Yeah. You, know, you have to, uh, in this scene, at least you have to put your money, where your mouth is, right? You're going to see these people in real life. You're going to mm-hmm. be in a room with them. You know, they're going to remember mm-hmm. stuff
3: and they might whoop you at the actual <laughs> tournament. <laughs>
7: oh, yeah. yeah. You know, it's going to be real embarrassing to lose to someone you talk shit about, which I'm <laughs> sure has happened before. <laughs>
6: Yeah, anyone who's trying to call out cuddlecore in any way, I'm like, yeah, good luck, good luck, <laughs> good luck.
3: <laughs> I have watched not not that I am the type to do this, but especially after watching cuddlecore play, I'm not I'm not saying word one to this person. <laughs> Nothing but praise for me mm-hmm. to cuddlecore. <laughs>
7: yeah, love and light only. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Phil, you've been covering and been in the fighting game community for a minute how has it changed since you started
6: um so i started to get into it in a more serious way in late 2014 and that was kind of at the advent of these major tournaments becoming significantly more major right mm-hmm. like i remember apex 2015 being one of the first very large and in a lot of ways very um disastrous events at the time and i think one of the biggest things we've seen on an events level is Tournament organizers really just every year after year pushing the envelope, making things more big and more ambitious. And hopefully, COVID doesn't throw a wrench in all of that because things were like just trending upwards constantly in terms of like the player experience at events and Mm -hmm. the kind of like glitz and fun opportunities at major events. And on the player side, just like playing the game online, one thing COVID has. Uh, kind of inadvertently given us is uh the netcode revolution um yeah we're seeing a lot of fighting games um move their netcode structures to a rollback based system which um a lot of uh documentary content has been clamoring for in the community um, a lot of voices have been clamoring for rollback as a solution to a lot of lag and delay issues as players especially now that we're all stuck in our rooms playing. Um, those changes are finally starting to happen in a very real way. And it feels like the developers are listening to the community voices as they call for them. And hopefully once everything can finally go back to normal, we'll just pick up where we left off. Um, I'm sure it won't be that simple, but um, Mm. things were kind of constantly moving forward um, in the social justice realm and the events realm. Like we're fighting these fights now. And that's, that's a cause for optimism for me.
3: Mm. If you could, if I could have you go back, if you sort of encapsulate because the netcode thing, because some people will be very familiar with this, some people might not be. So if you could, if okay. you could just sort of say, this is what this is what this is, and this is why it's good, and we managed to accomplish this, whatnot.
6: Um. So, uh, the net netcode in fighting games is um a bit of a hot topic right now because when you're playing a like a tier one eSport, um, like Riot is going to have servers all over the country for players to connect to to play on, but for fighting game players, they play, they connect directly to each other and play. And the game kind of deals with the ping in the way that the game sees fit. Um, and there have been some not so great netcode versions for various games. Like people have been very upset with Street Fighters netcode. They feel like the delays cause characters to teleport and jump around a lot and things like that. And yeah. in the COVID era, now that we're all kind of stuck here, there've been a lot of voices in the community who have been calling for developers to revise net code and provide what's called rollback net code where like the game effectively guesses what you're going to hit next and is right most of the time like if you've put in a jump command you're going to be jumping like if you've put in a punch command you're going to be punching for more (laughs) frames than the instant you hit jump with punch right um and we're seeing developers finally take us up on that we're seeing um to your point your game killer instinct killer instinct was an early adopter of this and um a friend of mine made a really good documentary about um Killer Instinct and they talked about how the netcode was one of Killer Instinct's strongest things and Mortal Kombat mm. X another or Mortal Kombat 11 rather um another western made fighting game um ran delay uh rollback based netcode and allowed mm. players in very remote parts of the country and continent to compete and practice and develop their game where maybe they didn't have a local scene and these um rev they're they feel small but they really are revolutionary like we've had mm-hmm. one in melee um a modder has been able to make rollback netcode for melee via an emulator and it's really changed the way we play away from tournaments like it finally feels like we have something to like yeah.
3: get very substantive practice out of there's there's one i mean there's one thing that I, i'm curious about both of y'all's take on actually is as lord willing the pandemic ends And we're actually able to go back to some semblance of normal, right? I think there's been a lot of conversation, right, that when the pandemic ends, that maybe we should change how we do things. Maybe we don't need everybody in the office anymore. Maybe there's some things we don't need to do in person. That feels like a difficult conversation to have for fighting games, though, because yes, lag has gotten better. You can play online better. You you can have better matches and whatnot during COVID. We've been able to accomplish that. But it feels like really the heart and soul of a fighting game, the tournaments, is doing them in person. Do you think, are people going to want to go back to just full on 100% in person? Is there going to be some kind of hybrid where some of it's online, some of it's not? What, What do you think is the best move for the culture in general?
6: I think now that there's been a pretty significant effort to improve the infrastructure of these games online, that there Mm. will be that existing online component. There will be net play warriors. There will be people like that who just kind of like live and primarily experience the game through this, but Is that a good thing, though? um, I think it's a good thing because I think events will still exist in very much the way they used to once it's safe to have it that way, because Mm. ultimately it's like, you know, you want to do something in the most optimal way possible. Like when you play football, you want to be on premium turf with the best pads and uh, the best gear that money can buy, like when you're competing in Street Fighter or Melee or what have you, you want to be at a tournament playing on a, like an instant response, like no no delay, no nothing, no artificial uh, delay boosting, none yeah. of that, just straight up two people analog style. That I think you can't, no matter how hard you try, try really replace that. Like even mm. though the rollback is better and very playable and can be used to constructively develop your play. Ultimately, like LAN is LAN. like everyone's in just going to wait to get person. back to LAN. Yeah, you can't beat it. It's just it's yeah. just the way things are.
7: It does seem though like this this these advancements in netcode mean that uh, we'll see perhaps a broader base of players, like more kinds of players that come from different parts of the country that are mm. now finally able to practice in ways that make them better instead of make them
1: frustrated.
6: True. absolutely absolutely there's there's already the games that have had better net code in place have had players at major tournaments who like they've been asked in interviews and stuff like what's your favorite part about this game and um i remember a Tweedy who's a mortal Kombat player uh somebody asked him on stage like what's your favorite part of mortal Kombat?" and he's like the net code because i live in the middle of nowhere in indiana <laughs> and it's,
7: amazing i wouldn't
6: be able to, it's like <laughs> like it's it, it was such a great little answer i was like wow
7: yeah i mean it makes a difference
3: Speaking of, um, speaking of the, just the ability to connect to different people, and you know if you're out in the middle of nowhere, you can connect to people. One thing I found that I just found super interesting was, I feel like this was in a Street Fighter-related forum, was a link to people actually posting videos on how to learn basically Korean vocabulary for fighting games in case you're playing against somebody. And I was just, oh my gosh, why, why not? <laughs> you can actually communicate with people. I just found that so interesting.
6: Some of the terms are a lot more fun in their language than they are in ours. (laughs) It's a lot of fun to use it.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think the slang that comes out of the fighting game community is more memorable and just more interesting than slang that comes from other video game communities, partially because it's made up by these commentators who are often describing and naming new things on the fly. Mm -hmm. But... Also just because like, there's such physical terminology. Uh, One of my favorite is footsies, which is like- (laughs) I can't stand that word,
3: I can't stand that word.
7: (laughs) It's so funny to me, because it's like, oh, you're like literally physically referring to a part of a person's body that is not doing shit (laughs) while footsies are occurring. Footsies refers to something completely different. But it is all about um, the input into the game what it is producing, a very quick visual metaphor so that yeah. other people can understand what's happening. You know, I have I have often also said, though, that the fighting game community tends to be how the rest of the video game community learns what black people were saying, like, six <laughs> years ago. <laughs> like, when people started talking about bodying other people, I was like, damn, you listened to some rap from 2006? <laughs> like,
3: Oh, my gosh, Gita. I mean, you're not... Wrong.
7: But <laughs> like, like, remember I when everyone started saying "thick" all of a sudden? It was like, oh, okay.
3: Oh no! <laughs> Someone's
7: been listening to some '90s hip hop and brought it up at their local fight night. <laughs>
3: who who decided to start? I, I want to talk to the person. We I don't want to do anything bad. I just want to have a. Ha- I just want to have a conversation with whoever decided to spell it with two C's. That's all. Mm-hmm. I just want to. Internet.
7: Talk. It's why <laughs> the same reason why "titty" is spelled with one T. Like, it's the internet.
3: <laughs> uh, I mean, spe- okay, footsies, which is a which is a phrase which by which I will not abide, but I respect <laughs> your decision to to embrace it. That's fine, Gita. No, no bad blood. I just um, think it's cute. It, it is. It is. No, I'll give you that. It's cute. Um, is there any Phil? Is there any slang that comes up for you?
6: <laughs> oh, it's nothing but slang. Like once you get in and like. <laughs> It, it, and you do the full ironic circle with slang like when you start yeah. calling things reads when they're not um, one <laughs> that I enjoy it's a very simple one it's just mix ups like like mix ups are a thing in every one of those games and mm-hmm. I use it in real life all the time like if I'm walking down a crowded street and I know I'm going to try and walk around this person and they, they fade a little bit the way that I'm trying to walk around them so then I go the other way and they go I'm like oh, fuck mix ups shouldn't have scored <laughs> it's like oh mix ups I'm
7: going to do that every time now yeah.
6: It's <laughs> got good mix-ups. I have bad reads, you know, and I love reads too.
3: Like it, it feels like there's so many memes that have come out. I mean, yo, uh, Smash is one too. I mean, the Falcon Punch. It feels like that's just everywhere.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Just there's so many memes that have come out of that. There's there's one. I don't know. Actually, Phil, you may be familiar with this one. One of my favorite, just weird fighting game lingo things is ac- It's actually in Japanese, so it's Machigayder. And so Machi means wait and Gaida as in Guile, the character in Street Fighter 2. And so it's, it's sort of a pejorative when you're at the arcade and you see somebody who plays Guile, but all they do is, all they're doing is charging and they just duck because they're waiting for you to jump or they're waiting for you to, so you can hit them with the flash kick. It's just, okay, we got a Machi guy to here. They're not even really trying to play. It's, it's like a cheap player. It's just, when I heard that, I knew exactly what it was. I was just, oh, that's so clever. But it's also, hating on people who play like that
6: i think my favorite japanese crossover term is uh okizeme which is kind of like the rock paper scissors you have with an opponent coming out of knockdown Uh uh-huh yeah um it's like one of the places i excel the most as a player because it's just like it is literally just the most simplistic depending on the game and the situation you can really boil it down to a rock paper scissors and like i just feel like i'm more comfortable in that situation where i'm like, like let me throw a guess out here let me throw something weird at you here like you have to make a decision right there.
3: It is it is funny watching Japanese game slang transfer over into the English speaking sphere and how much of that has just been incorporated. Cuz yo, I remember being a kid and trying to figure out what the hell Hadoken was. It just what are they saying in the show And that for a lot of people I feel like especially back in the day that was your first just exposure to that to an entirely different way of talking, you know what I mean, Japanese specifically. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's interesting watching that incorporated and just, oh yeah, you just say it like that. That's all it is.
7: (laughs) I think the true signifier though is when a a fighting game slang ends up in a rap song. (laughs) I feel like the hip hop community is already halfway there though.
3: Oh, that is, Gita, that is in a whole other episode and you will come back for that (laughs) because video games and rap music, season two, video Mm -hmm. games and rap music. Ooh, ooh, that is a whole other conversation. We got to do that.
7: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I am not sure I I know what the first, what I learned was, but I am mm. curious while I think about it. What are the first special moves that the two of you learned for fighting fighting games?
6: I mean, I guess it's got to be wave dashing because melee was like really that game for me. And like yeah. wave dashing was the first thing that really had a bit of a barrier to it at the start because like. First, you have to understand what you're doing. It helps to do that. It's not necessary, but like you want to understand mm. the process of what you're doing it. And then you hone doing it itself. And then you hone all the things that you're going to want to do out of it. And once it's it kind of a high hurt,
3: level first step special move, though. Yeah,
6: you know? yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say Hadouken because like, because I feel like you can teach somebody a Hadouken, a fireball motion pretty quickly. And it's mm. from there. It's just a hammering it down, having them do it 100 times right. a day until they can do it without thinking about it. I guess maybe yeah, yeah, like a, a DP motion, that's a little bit tougher. But but yeah, the wave dash was the first one where I'm like, this just opened up my entire universe, you know?
3: Ooh, okay, okay. I mean, for me, for me, my my bar is much lower. So mine would definitely be just Blanca's roll attack. Because there was nothing else I could actually do consistently. The Hadouken was just too much for me. But mm-hmm. I can hold back and hit forward and a punch button. I can do that. I love charging, and it felt it felt super cool too. It's just when <laughs> when you're a kid and you're still trying to figure out how the heck this stuff even works that that and mm, I was probably doing the electricity thing, but the roll attack felt like I was actually doing a move. I was actually doing something. The other yeah. stuff just felt like cheese. You know, the hundred hand slap, all that stuff. It just felt like cheating.
7: Yeah, I I I played a lot of tag and tag, and a lot mm. of Guilty Gear acts with my older brother. And even though he doesn't really play fighting games anymore, I do have a distinct memory of just learning, I think it was quarter circle square, which is like just the one, the first heavy kick special Mm -hmm. for a jam. And like just being a child and doing it correctly and then being like, okay, can I do it correctly another time? And then doing it correctly another time and like really fully absorbing and knowing that I knew how to do it. And I think I can still do it if you hand me a controller right now, but don't. Test me on that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yo,
3: you know what? Actually, you know, aside from just little stuff like the roll attack or the Hadouken or whatever, when I really felt like I was doing something worth bragging about was in Smash when I finally mastered Ness and I finally got that energy beam thing to Mm -hmm. actually jump up higher. That mm-hmm. was when I felt like, cause I would watch people do that. And I'm just, how do you do that? And this seems like such an impossible character to play. But when I finally started mastering actually doing that, that was when I felt like, all right, I'm a big kid. I'm, I'm doing something now. This is impressive.
7: Similarly, when I finally learned how to accurately troll my Smash playing friends with <laughs> custom game modes, I did feel like I learned enough about the game to at least be very annoying, which is my only goal <laughs> ever. Uh, check out this. If you really want to piss off your Smash friends, here's my favorite game mode. Call it Bad Balls and Bees. And it's when you set items to high, but you turn on everything, turn off everything except for real Smash balls, fake Smash balls, and bees. And if you even just say this to a person who plays Smash regularly, <coughs> you, can, you can feel them like cringe internally. It's Phil so much not fun. Happy.
3: not happy. happy about this. <laughs>
7: I love it. To
6: think that there was an era early in the time of Super Smash Brothers Melee where uh, one part of the country had items on and the other part had items off.
1: Oh my um, god.
6: Like, I can't believe that we still play with that other part of the country at all. Like, <laughs> they came around like good, but like, what What were you thinking?
0: You don't
7: need to like have a fucking gun. You don't need Pikachu to get a laser gun. You don't need that to happen in Smash
3: I disagree. I think it is very necessary. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, Gita, thank you so much for rapping with me. Uh, we could keep going on about this forever, but we should probably wrap it up. And for you, definitely come back again soon. We have a lot more to talk about on Reset, the unauthorized guide to video games.